Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, is revenge a dish best served cold? Well, I certainly wouldn't want to eat it warm. <laughs> How about this? If revenge is a dish best served cold, is it even better if served frozen? <laughs> <laughs> well, frozen in an ice age. Because I feel like in this story, we got cold to frozen to buried for a million years to put into outer space to put to what is it minus 273 yeah <laughs> zero like, kelvin if, if there's a, a good revenge tale, liquid this nitrogen is this is it this is the one and then served maybe the <laughs> best revenge tale so so yes <laughs> yes uh, i remember when i first heard that um expression it was in a hockey context oh. some broadcaster was talking about how one player was getting another player back after a long time. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, he, he didn't even put that guy in jail for like, what was it, 10 years? <laughs> so, there you go. So, yes. Anyway, today we are returning back to the world of the classic novel with The Count of Monte Cristo, written by Alexander Dumas, or as my friend Colin likes to call him, Alexander Dumas. There <laughs> <laughs> you go. Who also authored The Three Musketeers, mm-hmm. which you just learned about. I for some reason, I did or, not know that. I bet you you did. I knew it, but, but I'd you forgotten just it. Didn't, yeah, place it. So it was like a bit of a surprise again. To yes, have you ever read the Three Musketeers? I have. That's the weird part. So <laughs> usually, I can remember authors. But. I actually read it last summer for potentially this podcast, and about fifty pages in, I was like, I like this book, but I don't think it's going to be a really true fiction episode. No, but it's a great book. Yeah, it is a great book. But this one, Count of Monte Cristo, oh gosh, this is a huge book. <laughs> yeah, clocking in at nearly 1,500 pages. I think we're at 14. Yeah, what's the... Uh, 1,462. 1,462 pages. And what's the what's the printing of it? And the printing that we read was published in 2002 by the modern library uh, paperback okay. edition. So. And and so I think, and you just mentioned it was 1844, 1845 it was published? Yes. And, um, and that was a published originally over a, um, like a Dickens novel as a series in a, in a journal. So mm-hmm. there was a, it's interesting. It's a, an, <laughs> you can tell with these books sometimes <laughs> yeah. that they were, uh, they were episodic. Hmm. I mean, I think Dumas is an incredibly good writer. Yes. But you could tell he had a lot of time on his hands too to be able to write this much. There was or no he Netflix. Must have been. <laughs> there was no Netflix in uh, in Dumas' world. Yeah. And the novel itself, though, is set um, mostly in. I think it's like the beginnings around like eighteen ten, eighteen eleven ish. Going, it seems, I guess, maybe into the eighteen thirties even. 
Um, so it's like a novel that takes place over about a 20, 25-year span of time, it seems like, right? Yes. Geographically around the Mediterranean, around the kind of French, Marseille, Italian coasts of that area. So I actually loved reading it to just kind of like, because whenever I read a book or watch a movie or even just get a news article or a picture even on the internet of um, some geographical place in the world, I just love going to like Google Maps and just scrolling around and like looking is like, is there really an island of Monte Cristo? And I couldn't find one exactly, but all of the other bigger islands are around in that area. So I thought it was really cool because obviously Dumas, he's French, he's from that area. So he just, I don't know, I like that kind of local geography flavor in a place. And I think just a yeah, note on Dumas is that before he um, got into these things, he was a travel writer. Uh, so he, he really enjoys describing scenes to his audience. Really? I did not know that. Yeah. How did you find that out? I oh, you just knew that. I just I didn't ask. Some little <laughs> piece of knowledge. <laughs> didn't know he wrote the Three Musketeers. I, yeah, I was <laughs> gonna say. I love how you have that piece of trivia <laughs> rattling around. That would be like knowing Spielberg what elementary school he went to, but not, not that he did he Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> or something. I love that. That's so great. Yeah. So um... so this is our first foray back into uh, what I would call a great novel. Right, yes. like we haven't done a novel like this probably since. Let me think. Atlas Shrugged, I guess, is the last big novel we did, and wow, are they different kinds of books? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> holy, they take a little bit longer to process, yeah. uh, but they really uh, they they draw you. This in. This one is a bit longer, at least in page length. I bet you word count Atlas Shrugged might be a bit longer because the font is so tiny. Now, if you listen to those episodes we did on Atlas Shrugged, you'll hear that we. Or at least I. I mean, I, I didn't particularly love the book, but I thought it was important. Yeah. <laughs> there were important ideas yeah. in it. I actually really loved reading this book. Can I say it's as important? I don't know. Like, it's just, it's fascinating. Maybe it's a psychologically important. Sure. I yeah. mean, it's kind of the the classic revenge novel. I don't mm -hmm. think. Is there any other story that you can think of that is better on the revenge topic? No, I guess probably not. And revenge is a huge part of the maybe the human story. Well, revenge is a motif in many. Well, yes, it might be one of the top five motifs of stories. Yeah, right. But, but there's this is kind of the quintessential revenge. Novel. Well, this feels like the revenge story that you know went the whole nine yards. Like didn't leave anything in the tank. No, no, like <laughs> like yeah, very fulsomely and thoroughly written. Yes. <laughs> This was this was well planned. Yeah, so what's kind of interesting about this novel is that we're going to talk today predominantly about the novel. We've both seen the movie and have a couple things to say maybe near the end of the podcast about the film, but neither of us had re uh, read this book. Yeah. So both of us had seen the movie, but neither of us had read the book, and I find them to be quite different other than the pr like how he gets into the prison and the prison scenario. Even, th even that's different. Yeah, even that's yeah. different, but I thought that was the most similar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the rest of it seems very different. Even the kind of like who's the main villain seems different. Main in the villain, movie. relationships with the villain, <laughs> his relationship with uh, Mercedes, yeah, everything uh, is different. Uh, there's like no Jacopo character in the book no. exactly, or at least not that prominent. In the book, he find, falls in love with yeah. someone else and at the end. I mean, we can give a little thought too, because this is a brand new impression on us on how this book even made its impact on our minds as we read it. I, I was surprised, I guess, 
because of how kind of famous even, and it could be from the movie, but the famous him getting betrayed and then sent into the, I believe it's Chateau Dief is the name of yeah. the, the house Dief, but it's obviously a euphemism yes, for yes. this terrible prison. I was surprised, like basically from his arre- betrayal, arrest, imprisonment, escape, it's like the first like 250 pages of the book. So you basically have like another like, Almost 1,200 pages of revenge. Yeah. And like really building out the story <laughs> Holy around the cow. revenge. Yeah. I've never, I've never read a book that built into its ending longer, yeah. I think. The plot is incredibly intricate. And arguably, and so it's interesting because I've, I've heard, that's another random fact that I know about Dumas. But, Perfect. Um, that, that kind of, in, he's a romantic, right? He's a sure, writer yeah. in the romantic period. French of that era. Which, you know, is also kind of Dickens. Dickens kind of wrote in the romantic era. And um, one of the things that was kind of a, a staple of the romantic era was, was two things. One was the, or it, well, it birthed this, the detective novel, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, this was before Arthur Connor. Arthur Conan Doyle, like this was before Sherlock Holmes, like this was, and it's interesting because he's finding things out about these people and exposing them in the way that a detective would. Absolutely. And also, we kind of see that he's a bit of a superhero, mm-hmm. like he's kind of superhuman. Uh, he's yes. really good yeah. at everything Well, uh, his in the book. Uh, yeah, and <laughs> I guess his superhumanness or his competency like there's just kind of like this 10-year gap in the story right so like from his escape to when he starts but coming even, back on like the even scene. in the prison he's learning like so oh yeah fast, yeah yeah right? well that's it where he that's where he begins to get the skill set and then i guess over like i guess if if we're to take seriously which whatever it's a story we might as well his growth of capacity over about that year he has with faria in the prison sure yeah 10 years of research yeah. and checking up. And if you have a reason to do that, and which is very strong. Obsession, yeah. 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 So I was just a little bit taken aback at how much of the book was more about him as the count as opposed to him as Dantes. Because in the movie, it's like not 50-50, but it's like a third to two thirds maybe. And it's just like, a, I can see why they didn't make a movie out of the way the book was. It would have been really boring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you couldn't do it. You There's a, it. It, it's it's one of those things we've talked about before where the medium allows for very different. Sure, sure, things, sure. Right? You know that expression, the turning of the screw, yes. or the turn of the screw was, a, which is a novella by Henry James. Just the idea of like incrementally moving along something. Now, generally, it's used as a negative thing, and it is for most of the people in this book. Yeah, and it's just like there's about a there's honestly like a thousand page section of this book where I'm just like oh, these screws are turning so incrementally. And you can't even know exactly how or where. I mean, honestly, (laughs) I couldn't believe it. There's like a 40-page section of the Count under an alias of Sinbad the Sailor orchestrating a scenario to get this one guy, I can't even remember his name, maybe who's Albert's friend, who's getting into the scenario. So he meets him apparently organically, so that he now has an in to organically meet Albert, Mercedes' son, and and also Fernand's Fernand, son, right? Fernand, yeah. But there's like 40 pages where you're like, what is happening? <laughs> like, who who are these people? Why is this in the story? And then only retrospectively, you're like, holy crap. That was a massive part of the book just for this small little lead-in so that no one is suspicious of the count. 
there's a six there's a sixty page section where the count doesn't even appear, and we're learning about his friend who's like becomes a and the, the, the origin story of a robber baron. Right. Oh, um, is that Luigi? Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Jeez. So. So we're going to attempt a plot rundown of this book, but it is a huge book, and I read it a long time ago, at long time, like over two months ago, and David read it a little while ago too, but he's read it more recently, so he's going to do his best. Yeah, I'm going to try. We're, we're going to hit the main points. This is a really good book, yeah. I think. This like is This is a fun adventure story. Mm-hmm. Right? And even though it's almost 1,500 pages, it doesn't read that hard. Like I, find, I found the prose of it to be quite accessible. Yeah. in this translation that we used. And it's a bit of a swashbuckling mystery, right? Exactly. Even though you know what happens in the end because the story is so famous now in culture, I loved it. It's worth the read, I think. So if we're missing anything in the plot, we'll get the big points apologies. So David, right, take it away. So we start the story with our friend Dantes, Edmund Dantes. That's how you pronounce it? I think so. Oh, I always said Dantes. I think Dante. I'm thinking Dante because it's kind of spelled Dante with an S on the end. But, but was well, I don't know. I thought Dante was Italian, and this guy's French. Do they pronounce Dantes. it the same? Okay, let's say Dantes. Okay, well, whichever one we don't know. So, we're, so okay. if you say Dante as, I will assume Dantes. Okay, so Don <laughs> Don Edmund. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> so Edmund uh, uh, has just come back from a voyage. He, uh, the the book opens and the ship is sailing into port and we're given kind of the uh, impression that he is a very young and full of vitality guy. And yeah, also I think he's from, like 19. Yeah. What he's we're, 19 yeah, yeah. and he's gracious, but he's also seems to be very competent mm-hmm. and he's brought this ship home. The captain of the ship has died and there's some indication that they stopped at an Island. They probably shouldn't have, we're not really given in the book a lot of information about that right away. No. What proceeds to happen is we get introduced to various characters in this story. Fernand. V-Fort. V-Fort. Or, or, yeah, so Villefort, uh, Ville- every, this is a French novel <laughs> yeah. written in French. So all the names are French, and neither David or I speak French, so we are going to struggle our way <laughs> so through it's the Ville- Villefort. So it's V-I-L-L-E-F-O-R-T. So I think in the movie there's Villefort. Like, Villefort? Villefort. 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 Yeah. Okay, so... We have Villefort and Danglar. Del- and Danglar. And then another guy named Caderus. Yeah, Caderus. Caderus. Okay. So we got these characters. The three characters, one of them seems to be a moneylender uh, or, or something along those lines who kind of gave a loan to Dantes. Which one? Starts with a C. Caderus. Caderus. Okay. Caderus. Right. One of well, something that everyone should know is that I recognize names simply by the word on the page. Oh, sure, yes. <laughs> well, and there's I a, don't pronounce them out of my head. I so. mean, and if you haven't ever heard the name, yeah. and you don't speak the language, like how would you know exactly how to pronounce it? Exactly, exactly. So, um, a Villefort is a uh, a magistrate who is very ambitious and is looking to kind of rise in the ranks of French. Society. And they're in Marseille, I think, right? And, he, and they're yeah. in Marseille. And then um, we also have Mercedes, who is this lovely young lady who mm. is seventeen at the beginning and is in love with Edmund. And then we have Edmund's father, and we're introduced to these characters and, and uh, Mr. Morrill. And Mr. Morrill, who, who owns the, the shipping, own, the, he owns a shipping company. At the beginning, he's kind of this giant of industry who seems to be very successful, and he's kind of bestowing favor on Edmund for doing such a good job. And essentially, it, 
we're informed that uh, Edmund is going to become the captain of the ship, which mm-hmm. for it seems for a nineteen year old is quite a, a <laughs> feat. Quite promotion. Which seems to speed up his romantic endeavors because now he has a more uh, solid job that he can pursue things with. So he plans to now marry his, I guess, his betrothed. Uh, much to the chagrin of another suitor of Mercedes named Fernand. Now, Fernand was a soldier, but he's not really in the army right now because there isn't really a war going on. Mm. And uh, and he has been, it seems, the childhood friend of Mercedes. And she sees him that way. And she, and she he, sees him. He doesn't he's see her totally friend zoned yeah, by Mercedes. Our, I was thinking that. Like, this is like one of the original yeah. OG friend zone. Uh, OG friend zone. He's like beseeching her all the time to fall in love with him. And she's like, I think you're great. I just don't feel that way about you're my, you. You're my good friend. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, that was a funny yeah. little part of the beginning. So. As the stage is set, it seems that everything is coming up, Dantes. And then we realize that the envy of some of these other characters is going to result in a series of events that put Edmund in prison. And and really what it is, is it turns out that Napoleon Bonaparte <laughs> gave a letter right. to Edmund when he was on the Isle of Elba. Mm-hmm. Now, and like just a historical point, it's this novel is set... Uh, and I'm not totally clear on the exact dates of the years, but this novel is set like just after Napoleon has been exiled to Elba, right? So basically, he's been kicked out by, I don't even know the right names for the factions, but the part of France that doesn't well, want so an emperor. So the monarchists have taken back over, yes. basically the, the, the royalists or mm-hmm. whatever. And uh, this was after Napoleon had been defeated. Mm-hmm. And then, you so know. So yeah, I mean, this novel's like set 20 to 40 years after the French Revolution and just all of the chaos of the country. <laughs> yes. So they got rid of royalty, then they had an emperor. Now they have a king again. And then turns up Napoleon shows up again. So anyway, he gets caught in the middle of this intrigue and it looks like he's going to be okay. But uh, Villefort has a father who's Bonapartist. Mm-hmm. And named in the letter and, and, that Dantes and named, was carrying. Named in the letter. So in order to cover his own tracks, our friend Villefort... Who is very ambitious. Who is incredibly ambitious. And ashamed of his father, which we're, right. that is introduced to us early on, throws Edmund into prison. Chateau d'If. And just kind of forgets about him. It doesn't listen to any of the entreaties of his fiance or the father. Or Mr. Morrill. Or Mr. Morrill. Like... Nobody nobody gets their, their day in court, especially after Napoleon comes back and takes back over for mm-hmm. for a hundred days. <laughs> yeah, right. But, but whatever. <laughs> so after this imprisonment, the story moves into the prison where we get introduced to kind of the suffering, the mental torment that uh, Edmund is going through as, as this 19-year-old slowly ages and watches his life drip away and has no real hope and, and knows that he's been falsely accused and that he's been well he doesn't he knows he's been falsely accused he doesn't know why he's there and at about the point where he's given up on life he encounters abby uh ferreira, mm-hmm. ferreira. his name is f-a-r-i-a so i always wrote read faria faria but feria feria mm-hmm. okay so he's a so he is a uh, a religious man an abby and he is from italy and through the course of a number of events, he begins educating 
Edmund as they together try to tunnel out of the prison. In this education, it's interesting because we get introduced to the first kind of example of Edmund being a bit of like a, su- a superhero because his his intellect is so fast, his memory is sharp. I mean, despite you know, he's a good learner. He's really. I mean, to be fair, it's the only thing he would have to do, right? Mm -hmm. Right. There's not uh, not a lot (laughs) else going on in his life. So, (laughs) yeah, years go by. Two years, I believe, uh, of this education before Faria has seems like an epileptic seizure. Seizure. They don't call it that. He has it, and it and it's almost like a stroke, and it paralyzes half his body. And he's like, I'm never actually going to be able to escape now. I certainly can't swim. But now I'm going to tell you that there's this treasure I want you to go and find. It's from this family that he served under. Uh, And this is actually, funnily enough, very integrated into kind of a bunch of the Machiavelli uh, families. Mm, It's a later time period. But it's uh, a lot of the families that get talked about in, in Machiavelli are talked about mm-hmm. in uh, And it's like they're kind of like lost fortune. So so their fortune was hidden because they, they were afraid that the, these um, basically corrupt popes mm-hmm. were going to take it from them. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> so then he dies. Yeah, the Abbey dies. The, the, the Abbey dies. And Edmund in a moment of what seems like brilliance, is like, well, I'll hide in the body bag. Mm-hmm. They'll take it out, they'll bury it. I'll escape, or I'll dig myself and I'll escape. He doesn't realize they're going to toss him into the ocean. That's how yeah. they bury people on this island. Yeah, They toss him into the ocean, and he cuts open the bag and escapes. Yeah. Find some Italian pirates. Find some smugglers, yeah. ends up with the smugglers. Then the smugglers eventually get him to, to the, isle of, the island of Monte Cristo. Mm-hmm where he fakes an injury and then tells him just to leave him behind there and come back and find him later because he can't move. Then he finds a treasure. And then we skip forward in time. Yes, a significant Uh, amount of time. Probably about a decade. And through the course of this decade, it seems like our now Count of Monte Cristo, as he calls him, or Sinbad the Sailor, Mm -hmm. or... He's got a few aliases. He's... um... He's also Abby Busini, yes, or Busoni, and uh, Lord Wilmore when he needs to be British. <laughs> so he's got a number of aliases. And supposedly and he's very good at disguises, yeah, <laughs> um, because no one seems to be able to tell when he's wearing any of these different disguises. He's like an early uh, Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. Always yeah. got a mask. <laughs> yeah, he can he can do anything. What we find is that he has been systematically going around the globe, basically. It seems maybe in a bit increasing his fortune, basically building a team of individuals to kind of begin creating a web mm-hmm. around these people who had harmed him in the past. Oh, sorry. I forgot one thing. He does end up going back to Marseille. Yeah. And when he's in Marseille, he learns about the fate of his father who starved himself to death. Right. His fiance, who mourned him for a long time, and then marries Fernand, mm-hmm. who was the you know the the eternal friend zoned person mm-hmm. that was there during her grief, finds out that um, Villefort has become quite a powerful member of the Pari- of Parisian sure. society, and um, so is Danglar become and a Danglar Danglar or, or something something finance during the Spanish War he financed a bunch of that it seems yeah. 
And then what ended up happening was he made a fortune and he's mm-hmm. he's incredibly wealthy now. I think it'd be just important to point out as we go along that of the things that the Count does to these three men is that these three people very heavily conspired to just end Dante's life. Yes. <laughs> right? Like Danglar was jealous of Dante's because Danglar was like the second mate on the boat. The Fateon, and he I wasn't think. named the captain. And he wasn't named the captain. He's like, he, it seems like he's a several years older than Dantes, so he feels like he was skipped. He's very envious or jealous of Dantes, and part of the way that he gets back at him is to write this letter or, or like inform, basically tell. And Fernand goes along with it as well because he wants Mercedes, so he's like willing to just end Dante's life effectively to get mercedes so there's that's the two of them and then v4 the third one in the trifecta of betrayers is so terrified at how his honor will be lost if it's found out that uh, his father nortier is a bonapartist when the royalists are coming back into power so that's why between those three they put him in the chateau d'if or like they think he's dead as well so it's like the betrayal of Dantes, an innocent, is pretty colossal in the first bit of this book. Yeah, yeah. So, and so he's, hence and he's, why he's going about doing this stuff that he does the rest of the book. And he's for sure an innocent. Uh, like it, He's really portrayed as not even knowing that they'd betrayed him or that any of this had happened till, until uh, Father, or whatever, Abby Ferreri mm-hmm. comes and, and basically hears the story and tells him, no, like... They they plotted this. Like, yeah, yeah. He didn't they, even they did, figure yeah. that out. He couldn't even figure that. He hadn't even figured that out. So, <laughs> so he's like he was like a little naive. And end of his simpleton days there. I'd yeah, say. that that ended his kind of you know belief in the basic goodness of people. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, we could go into all of the details. Uh, I don't think that's necessary. But because uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are so many. The long story short, he he finds kind of the vice or the issue in each of their lives that mm-hmm. he can that he can highlight mm-hmm. and then through orchestrating of circumstances crushes them mm-hmm. uh, in, in in each in a unique and terrible oh way. Oh my gosh. And so intricate. Yes. Like I was blown away at how intricate this story is of the revenge. Uh, maybe a good way to think about it is like his revenge is like a Rube Goldberg machine. There's so much that goes on and so much planned and so many moving parts all to kind of arrive at the one part of revenge and like the deepest version of revenge. So it's like finding out about illegitimate children way in the past, like figuring somehow figuring that out and, and working out a way to bring that to the light in the most humiliating manner. Right. And he also brings on people that these other people have harmed and kind of befriends them. And there's a a camaraderie of revenge, Mm -hmm. right? They, they're all true. Yes, to, they're all- like Fernand, for example, and and Haiti, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. So basically, this Fernand guy goes to Greece and like becomes this senior officer for one of the uh, Greek royalty, and then turns them over to the Turks, right? To just be like mutilated and destroyed. Yeah, and like the the king is killed, or this yeah, the king is killed, and his daughter Haiti is. Um, she escapes. Is sold into or, slavery. Right, that's right. Yeah. By Fernand. So she, but then she gets bought mm-hmm. and freed by Edmund, who is <laughs> now the, the, the sailor Castor. at this yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, right. And then she's kind of internally loyal to him. And funnily enough, at the end of, not, not that it's, it doesn't play a big role in the book, but at mm-hmm. the end, she's like the, 
new love of his life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they they go off to <laughs> live a happy well, existence. I guess. I mean, there's just like there, there's honestly there's about fifteen different separate plot lines that are all coming to fruition because of the Count of Monte Cristo. Like he's like the master of puppets through yeah. all of it and they seem unrelated but you like as the book's drawing to a close you start to see them all coming together and you're like wow because and then like there's each for Villefort each for Danglar and Fernand like he basically really digs deep into history <laughs> to find out where they're weakest and incrementally bring those out so it'll be most humiliating for them right yes. and then they can as it were die right yeah. or then they can be destroyed and on top of like so while he's doing all of that he's also figuring out a way to somehow organically ingratiate himself into the society of these families at the same time yeah. and so, kind of be there amongst all of them right like he's kind of making it that all of the people that he's trying to get revenge on are his personal confidant. They consider him a personal confidant. They're intrigued by him, and they are starting to pursue his friendship. Yes. And yet he's the one making them do that. But he's because of his aliases, they just think he's this super rich guy that's interesting, and they want to meet. He's kind of like a great Gatsby figure yes, almost for them, very, right? very, very much. And yet he's the one doing that. So anyway, I found the revenge plot lines very long-winded but ultimately satisfying. Yeah, and and it's one of those things where you notice the little things they do in the beginning to bring you to the end, like yes, in a way yes, that, yes. you know, that's always very satisfying, right? They he they leave a long trail, or he leaves a long trail of cookie crumbs mm-hmm. in this book right. for you to pick up on your way to find out, well, what's going to happen next? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And obviously because this is published as a serial, I think that, excited people well i think we've talked about happen next yeah like we talked about this like david copperfield this kind of novel written as a serial is kind of like the early version of a tv show and i'd say the count of monte cristo reads like a tv show oh definitely right like it's it's just got all of these kind of i don't want to say like all of a sudden you feel really disjointed but you definitely feel like oh there's an episode over and we're just like in a completely different time period or a completely different geographical (laughs) place you know we're suddenly in rome yeah exactly and (laughs) but so well written holy like the prose of this book is the story is strong but i think the prose is even stronger and it's not even complicated it's just flowing yeah that would be the best way yeah it's 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 an easy read it's not at all tiresome to be reading it you don't like you can you can get lost in this oh yeah well i mean there's some because there are so many kind of garden paths and and straggling plot lines that you want to make sure you're as a reader you're not losing i think it was really smart of dumas to not make it the language overly complicated yes (laughs) right so you you don't have to have the same conceptual hang-ups of like what does that word mean what as what as you're like oh okay wait a minute i remember this character from 400 pages ago what were they doing again you know and so i guess i would put it this way it could be too complicated for a reader but it's just not quite yeah (laughs) you know like i felt like i was still able to follow mostly what was going on to get the payback so anyway Good job, David. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could have kept going, but well, I, I feel mean, like then it would have been the whole podcast. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, I think partly the plot of the book isn't exactly the point, although it is rewarding to read it. Okay, so we're going to start with Dantes. I loved his, like, honestly, I just fell in love with him in the first, like, 50 pages. He was He was so 
sincere. He was so helpful. He was so competent. He had a sense of humor. He just, he lacked that one feature that got him in trouble, which was kind of like savvy and discernment. I yeah. know we've talked about that before, but like... Uh, he just had no guile, and because he had no guile, it was like he was... It was almost impossible for him to sense it. Even when people are obviously his enemies, he mm-hmm. treats them as friends. And I know that we've talked about this before, but I just want to reiterate, I love when I read an insight into human nature from a different era in history that resonates even now. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, you noticed something, Alexander Dubois, about the human condition that I noticed now also yeah. about the human yeah. condition. And it just feels so connected. So yeah, he like that's a perfect. He has no guile, which leaves him wide open. Like, you would think, oh, I'm 19. Danglar is what, like 26? And he's generally a kind of curmudgeon in the first place. Like maybe he'll be a little bit butthurt about the fact yeah, that I'm I getting promoted. Captain, yeah. And he just had no kind of defense for that, you know? And um, I don't know, like that was just an observation. And then even when he's in the jail or in the Chateau d'If and he's learning about the treasure from the Abbey, his first thought is, well, what if it belongs to someone else? Yeah. Right? Like, what if it's their property? And I was like, okay, this guy, he's an honest broker. You can trust him. And the interesting thing is he doesn't even want revenge at that point because he doesn't realize that there's revenge to be got. Right. right. He's just yes. in despair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved him at the start. And this story was had a really interesting impact on me because I don't know what I think about the Count of Monte Cristo. Not the book, the, the, character. the character. Right. I know exactly what I think about Edmund Dantes. Right. I think he's awesome. And I would want a friend like that or aspire to be like that, maybe with the guile. But as the Count of Monte Cristo, I don't. Do we? I don't know, because you've read this more recently. Like, what are the scenes like in the book where he is opening up about his feelings about all of this? Well, it's interesting because he is. So we see a lot of religious imagery in this book, right? Like there's the baptism, which is essentially him be, get escaping prison and, and being given a new life. He fundamentally believes that he's on a mission from God, right? Like <laughs> the revenge mission. Yeah. God, God will have his justice, right? He he sees himself as the tool of God to wreak havoc on on the world, right? And like, but not, but very calculated, precise. <laughs> Like scaffold like yeah. havoc, and that conviction really carries him, right? Because he yeah. he really sees himself as like this tool of both blessing and vengeance, mm-hmm. right? Because he doesn't just hurt people; he really helps other people who who need it desperately, like, like Mortel or uh, Morel. Well, Morel, Morel, yes. The Morel story was, I think, one of the most touching moments with the son Max. Well, well or the, the older when, man when he saves his business and uh, yes. when, when yeah, he gives him right. the diamond that's and stuff, right. right? There's um, and obviously there's the whole relationship with with uh, Max and Valentine and everything that he does there, and the and the ending, obviously. But I think he is an example of what happens when you allow yourself to be consumed. <laughs> by a single idea yeah and when, when a highly capable person allows themselves to be <laughs> consumed by a singular idea hmm. i think that's really the point here is that it is a tale of of warning <laughs> uh but the thing is he feels regret okay. as soon as edward i believe it's edward 
the little boy. The little boy dies. Right. Right. Um, right. As soon as that happens, he yeah. feels regret. He didn't want that to happen. He didn't want. It, he didn't want to be the cause of the destruction of innocence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? that's a good way to put it. And so he works even, hard to sit, to protect the innocence and, in the book. Yeah, even in his like lust for revenge, mm-hmm. he isn't so corrupted by that that he doesn't care about anything else. No. But I, okay, I had a bit, I'll try and articulate my struggle with him in this, is that I, I am un, I mean, obviously it makes for a great long novel, so I get why it's written as a book, but if I'm going to take seriously that mentality that he seems to possess, I feel like he's letting this one thing dominate his life at the expense of everything else. And I am unsure of how sustainable that is as a mentality to remain as competent and right capable and intelligent and suave as he remains in the book. So like, that's just a whatever. I mean, maybe you couldn't actually be him for the amount of time that he is him. The bell curve of the tail end of the bell curve of the population who could maintain that level of focus for a decade is probably not high right so but we do know people that do do that i suppose right? so. like, like let's take some scientists who spend you know decades on sure. a single yeah. idea or yeah. artists well and revenge is probably the most powerful one of the most powerful motivators i just i couldn't help but feel like he was sliding into the category of villain as well or maybe anti-hero even though <laughs> it's a weird feel i felt weird about this book because the first quarter of the book you're like holy shit danglar and villefort and fernand are horrible they should be switched places they should be in this jail and he'd be free and by the end of the book i'm not ready to say that the count is worse than those three but he felt more of that kind of person to me than he was as Dantes. And even though, yes, he was trying to protect the innocents, I felt a lot of the tension, and and this I felt was pretty accurate psychologically, a lot of the tension of the book was when a couple of the characters either found out who he was actually or saw his weaknesses and started asking about that. And you could see him start to like tear up a bit like feel that emotion and like just feel the weight of his burden i guess of his purpose and i i just i don't know i i can't quite grasp the like okay why did it have to be as long as it was Uh, obviously they did for the book but like if they really did this why not just go to the cops (laughs) Or the gendarmes, I think they are in France. You know, like, I know why, but I'm still asking it rhetorically for, like, mental peace. Like, why isn't there something else he wanted to move on to his ambition? Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting question, right? Right. Is, is, I mean, why are people so consumed by things? Mm -hmm. I think there are probably real-life examples of people. But I guess maybe what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong here, but maybe what you're saying is he felt kind of one-dimensional in the sense that there doesn't seem to be anything else mm. that he's interested in. Yeah, so like, like I, we're not getting a total picture of a person here because we're only hearing the the story of his revenge, right? Not yes. not his like <laughs> love. And the interesting part about this story is that it's it's essentially all third-person narrative, right? So we're not getting any of his internal dialogue. No, we don't actually. We're we're getting only what he says. 
or or what's described mm-hmm. uh, about what he's thinking. We're not actually led into his own mind. Well, and interestingly, when he becomes the Count, we actually very, very rarely have his perspective. Yeah, even like a lot of a lot of the book is told from the perspective of the different villains. Yes, <laughs> as they are now post villainy, yeah. just living a kind of normal life, <laughs> and then they're and then things just start going wrong. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. they don't know why. <laughs> Yeah, no, I like that. I like that you made that point because I think my big question mark on his motivations throughout the book is I see so much of life, if not all of it, in in what I choose to do in my days as an opportunity cost. If I choose to do A, I'm kind of simultaneously choosing to not do B, C, D, E kind of thing. And I am skeptical, I guess, at the sustainability (laughs) of just choosing A that long for one thing over and over and over without having a fuller experience of things. And, and and I think this would lead into a little bit more of like, what do you think about revenge? Because like that's the revenge is the specter of this yes. book. It's, it's what has its like little arms and hands into every little aspect. And so uh, I guess we have to talk about revenge. Like, so maybe just give your like first thoughts yeah. on revenge. In well, general. I mean, maybe this isn't going to be a surprise to people, but I think that revenge can consume it it does more damage to the person seeking it generally speaking than to the i mean we've right. talked about this in huck finn mm, yeah right yeah, that's right um if you if you suddenly have escalating feuds which are really just corporate revenge stories yeah or like uh more back-to-back revenge yeah yeah <laughs> um the end result is that you are just you just whether it's a group of people or an individual you come out weaker as you in you know inspire your opponent to revenge but the problem is that the desire for it is not rational mm. it's not something that you're like it, it it feels justified though yeah then there's a big difference between rational and justified if you feel like you've been wronged mm-hmm. and you want to get back at someone for the the doing of that wrong mm-hmm. essentially of co-opted a sense of righteous indignation yeah. on your own part. And and that can feed a fire for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I think it's one of the most powerful motivators in human life, mm. but I think it's largely destructive motivator. Yeah, okay. It's like, it's even this, uh, if you go back to like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind right. of mentality, well, you know, then the whole world, as they say, goes blind, mm. right? Well, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because now I'm thinking, okay, how did the really, what was the negative aspect of his revenge that manifested for the Count? And I, it seems to me something like this, and I think I've hinted at it already, but see if I can put it out the way I'm thinking about it, is that the way that revenge works for the Count is that it does make him just so clinical and calculated, like you mentioned earlier, right? He's basically a robot <laughs> when it comes to his revenge. And when we do get a couple of peeks behind the curtain of his actual emotions, he's like basically broken, right? Like he's so sad and he's so torn up about almost like he's even a little bit torn up about what he's doing. Like he knows. And it's so great in the book. There's only about four or five times where he's like, he's caught out by someone who knows who he is or is like, you're doing you, you're pulling the strings here more than anyone else seems to think you are. Who are you really kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And you get these, you get this kind of mix of sadness and wistfulness and why am I doing this out of him? And yet the only kind of way he's able to not break down from that is to go back to that robotic 
revenge software. I'm in total control again. Uh, clinical. And I just, I was very disheartened for him, I guess, that his only kind of salve was autopilot. Uh, maybe you saw something I didn't. I didn't see anything to give him peace. I guess maybe after when he sails away, he's at peace. But, well, yeah, but it, he's kind of but I, I given up I d- on revenge at that point. Yeah, but I, I guess I just didn't totally buy that in real life. Like, I buy it, whatever, it's a narrative. Right. But I just don't, I can't quite believe the sustainability of a peace of mind other than maybe just that robotic, which seemed kind of sad to me. So I don't know. That's a bit of a jumble. But what do you think about that? Okay. So I think one of the most important parts of this is to understand that it's coming from pain, right? And so I think the fuel for, for the fire of revenge is the memory of hurt. So he's got 16 years, I think, that he spends in... In jail, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, he's, he's got like, a lot of years of thinking. Like that's like saying, "Oh, you took away my twenties and my early 30s. Yeah, true. Like you took away my youth. You, you took away my freedom. It's hard to remember that almost because of how quickly it's glossed over in the story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. Uh, and so I think that's the the driving force, and we have to remember that. So like. My imagination is like, why am I doing this? And then it's like that massive. Oh, yeah. oh that's oh, why I'm doing yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> it's right, like, right. oh, right. And you took the love of my life. And you took, you know, dot, 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 dot. I think that's how it works in real life, too. Mm. But so then do you think there was a way he could have gotten revenge without seeming kind of as sad as he did on the way to doing it? Well, I think a, a less maybe a enlightened person or you know, a less self-aware person would probably not get to that point of being sad that they were hurting others. They would. They probably take. There is a a uh, you know a sense of pleasure that come. I think it's Schadenfreude or Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. Yeah. Everyone listening to this podcast, obviously, I'm bad with language, but <laughs> I no, try to make up. David, with it. no, you talk good word. You talk good word. I talk good word. <laughs> so that that exists. That pleasure at the pain of your enemies is a real thing. And I think it's interesting that Dumas decided to not have his character get that much pleasure out of his revenge. Because I think even though it's temporary and it it actually is not life-giving, it doesn't give you anything of value back, that feeling. It does exist, Mm -hmm. right? Well, yeah, I mean, he clearly (laughs) does an incredible job of dismantling the psychology of the three villains. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like it's, he just destroys by, them. by the end, they are like losing their minds. And I think... Doesn't no, Fernand, one of them commits suicide. Yeah, Fernand, Fernand can, commits kills himself. Suicide. And the other two are basically totally destitute, poor, homeless, and on the run almost, it seems like. Or, you know? or their whole families have killed themselves essentially or, yeah. or left them. Yeah. yeah. So no, he's very successful yes. <laughs> in his revenge in the end. I also found he just kind of faded as an important character to the book for like 75% of it in a weird way, considering he's the mastermind. Well, he almost becomes like, uh, you know, the ghost in the machine. Yeah, it's well, I mean, there aren't a lot of novels like this where your ostensible protagonist is just kind of not in the book for like most of the book. Yeah, (laughs) just popping up here and there. Yeah, and it's kind of, I mean, it's obviously 
as a reader, it's you're you know who he is all the time, and you're the only one, right? Like no one else in the book knows who he is. Yeah, basically the whole time. Yeah, I don't know. I just would you have done it the way he did it? Hmm. Would you have done the revenge that way? Like, how would you if you? <laughs> this is like maybe the closest we can get to this. Like, if you were in his position, what would you have done? You know, I think if you're if you were sitting there thinking about it for all those years. You would probably not want to do it quickly. You would want to be patient, right? It would seem like death was too good for them in a sense because mm-hmm. of what they took from him. Would I do it the same way? I think it would be difficult for me to maintain that level of commitment <laughs> to sure, something that right. I felt like really wasn't of any benefit to me. Mm. So I don't think I could. But as I said before, I don't know what it would be like to be fueled by that kind of pain and and anger right i haven't uh i haven't had to suffer like that so so that kind of suffering would probably provide it would i have done it that way it's so intricate i know right yeah and i don't mean like the exact manifestation of the details would i I have gone into that much detail would you have waited a decade i do i do understand the uh the desire to kind of like befriend and work your way into a situation in order to right. accomplish your goals, I could see that being a real and profound desire. Hmm. That's fair. And also the kind of there is there is a kind of superiority you get from kind of knowing like think of in any interaction, I don't like these kind of interactions, but I understand that people get this. If if you know you're kind of pulling the wool over someone's eyes. Mm, right. I think there there are people who really get a lot of a kick out of that right mm, okay yeah okay well let's see if i can explain my intuition here is that i my intuition is i would definitely want revenge yes, <laughs> yes. and i would seek it out but i think just given the kind of way i operate now and and this answer might have been different when i was younger but i would want to not have my revenge take up this much of my life right i, I think would be how i would yeah. say it is that if i escaped i would want to expose all three of them basically immediately right like the thing is i might not get 99 percent humiliation embarrassment but i could get like 85 percent humiliation embarrassment very quickly with exposing villefort's subterfuge and hiding of his dad who was a bonapartist basically as soon as you find out about the misdeeds of all three and then just making them public right and all their friends know and instant shame and, oh, by the way, maybe look at them for lying under oath to put me in prison. Right, right. <laughs> so maybe they go, maybe they lose everything and then they go to prison. And the reason why my intuition is pulling me that way is not so much that, I mean, yes, I think there's a justice in the social opprobrium and then jail time. But also, like, I guess I just would want to do other things. Yeah. I don't know. Like, that's to me one of the real unspoken tragedies of revenge is the opportunity cost. Yeah, the the wasted time. The time that, well, yeah, because, like, isn't, I mean, I can't really remember. What, what is the Count going to do now? Just live happily ever after? Right. <laughs> is that, like, what how the story ends? Like, it's kind of like, okay, <laughs> he's sailing off now. His, with... you know, early 40s, and now <laughs> he gets to. And so, I, yeah, I, I don't think I could quite do it that long. Because I would want to do other things. And I also know that committed that long to like 
the kind of slowly peeling away of a distraction of another person, I think I just can't see what that would do for my soul over time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, and, exactly. And like these kind of themes aren't talked about very much in the book, but I would be asking those questions if this was real life. Yeah, there's know? not really a, there's a, there's, it's hinted at what it's doing to his soul and that it's maybe a little bit negative, but there's no, consistent conversation no. about it. Well, and because I don't think that's I don't think that was the intention of the book. Like very clearly the intention of this book is to give an awesome revenge story to an excited reader. Yes. <laughs> right? Similar to like The Three Musketeers is an adventure story. Exactly. Yes. So yes, it's intended as an adventure reads perfectly like that. I just was um mindful, I guess, of that massive gap in what I would consider to be relevant which is his psychology and all of this. Yeah, and, and I think the the question you have to ask yourself in that situation is why does it matter so much, right? Why, why does he want it so badly? Why do these people need to receive their comeuppance for the wrongs that they've done? And I think what I would one of the things I would struggle with if I was doing this was feeling, feel, feeling so righteous in my cause, mm-hmm. being like, am I really that much better than my enemies? Mm-hmm. Like that's something that I do struggle with sometimes, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, you, you're trying to, to beat these people. You, you you tell yourself this story about how you're fighting for what's right and they're not or whatever it yeah. might be. And is that really the case? Mm. Like, I mean, sometimes, I mean, I'm sure you have to, con- people have to convince themselves of that to do things. Right. But that doesn't mean that it's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or a capital T truth. And so, yeah, I, I, I agree. I don't think it works this way in real life. So I think it consumes a part of your time or a lot of your time. But I think there's always other things going on right. that are your the rest of your human existence, mm-hmm. right? Or and, and even if your life was centered around that, there would be enjoying meals <laughs> and there would be, you know, I mean, they don't really talk about those things. Well, much. yeah, I guess... We obviously brought it up, but the real the reason he can even do this is because he just finds this vast wealth. Yes, yeah. <laughs> right. So like that's a massive plot point that is not generally well, found in an, real life, and an important <laughs> plot point because he knows when he's searching for it on the island and he hasn't found it yet. He knows that if he doesn't find it, he won't be able to get his revenge. Right. Yeah. He's got a extra motivation to get rich. <laughs> yeah. And there's kind of that moment of terror and joy that they describe when he finds it because he's like, well, now I can. Now I can actually do this. You're right. So you're like, we're looking at like an N of one. Yeah. <laughs> like there's like no other real there's, like yeah, comprehensible some... comparisons to make about his scenario, which obviously that's why Dumas wrote it into the book. So yeah, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm willing to leave it a dangling thought, but that was the part of the book I was least sure about what I thought about it in terms of like, well, is he the hero? Yeah, I get it. They deserve it. But like at what point? Like, is there if you could even make this calculus? Is there a point where if you go far enough, you also lose your soul, as well as the people who've already lost theirs by doing what they did to you? And I think the I guess the short answer is yes. Yeah, I do think so. I do too. Yeah, I do too. And whether or not he gets to that point, I guess ultimately I would say no. But that's the danger. That's the warning sign. Yeah, that's the warning sign. And I still think he. I just can't believe he's had as fulfilling a life as he could have. Right. With his newfound freedom and wealth. And still would have been able to punish the three people that he did. But 
that wouldn't be as good of a book, I suppose. Right. <laughs> so anyway, I just, uh, I, I made a couple notes throughout him about things he did or said that I thought were either funny or interesting. And so uh, we can just go through them quick and see what you think about them. So this was one of the best examples in the narrative of how he's really turning the screw to start to humiliate. There's a scene where he buys horses, you know, apparently doesn't know this, but he, so he accidentally buys Danglar's horses to make him look foolish and astound him with his wealth. Right. Right. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Just, like what? A, he's like, Oh, I just bought these because I felt like owning some horses. Oh, they're yours? Oh, I'm so sorry, my good man. (laughs) Oh, here, you can have them back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, I can't believe that you would have to sell them to me. Like, I'm so sorry. It's like like, the book is full of these kind of like happy, and I'm using scare quotes, accidents, where he's just flaunting his wealth to make the other characters seem less than him. But in a way that he doesn't even notice that he's doing that. And then when he comes to his attention, he's very apologetic about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I just thought that was such a funny, like, Oh, let me, but like, imagine uh, if I like bought something, uh, like you really wanted something or you were really proud of it. And I ought like, well, cause there's servants throughout this book. So it's like, imagine if you had a servant, I guess. <laughs> and I just paid such an ext- uh, extreme amount of money for something that you didn't want to sell. And then I was like, oh, sh- shoot, sorry. Here you go. It's like, <laughs> Here, have it's, like, it's just so clearly making the other person less than you. Yeah. Right? And yeah. it's just like those little motifs are so good in the book and they're written so well. Now, here's a great line. I think this is the point where Danglar has lost a lot of money in an investment that he thought would be a good one. And it was because the Count orchestrated a lie so that he would get faulty information to invest a lot of money. He says, uh, so uh, Danglar has lost 900,000 francs. And he says, 900,000 francs? It is a sum which might be regretted even by a philosopher. (laughs) And my little note was, everyone has interest in money. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's like, even the people who just focus on the abstract qualities of life seem like that might even be enough to make them look. (laughs) They'd be like, ooh, (laughs) ouch. But I think that's like a clever observation even in an expression. Right. It's like, well, what person wouldn't have a price for something? Yeah. You know, which is an interesting thought is like, um, you know, how much money would it take to buy Socrates? Well, well, it turns out he, well, I think the reason his story is so compelling is that it's nothing. Right. He doesn't end up having a price because he dies. Right. So yeah, he, he chooses death over, over uh, banishment, which is interesting. But that is, that's a great question. And the funny thing is that this book really reflects on that, right? It's like, what is the price? And the interesting thing is the price of betraying Edmund is, is very low, right? Like, pe- they're basically willing to do it for Yeah, that nothing. is also something... Uh, it's so... Yeah, that's so arrestingly clear. Like, other than V-Fort, who I guess I can... I understood his motivation. The mo- Like, he had the most to lose yeah. in that scenario. Yeah. But the other two... Well, Fernand, it was, you know, I guess all's fair in love and war, but not really in this case. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but But Danglar especially was just, like, butthurt. That was yeah. it. His life wasn't any worse, right? No. Like, he still had his job. It was envy. Yeah, it was just it was pure, pure envy. Pure envy. And so, like, between the three of them, they choose to destroy Dantes's life for so small a thing, it feels like. And so I wonder if that was influencing that line. But I just think that's so funny. What a great line. 900,000 francs. <laughs> it is a sum that might even be regretted by a philosopher. Is, uh, there's a lot of good lines in the book. I like feel like that. I'm going to start using that one. 
Oh my gosh, that's 200, a <laughs> 275 bucks for that. That's a sum which might even be regretted by a philosopher. It speaks of uh, a different era it of rolls language. Off the tongue. <laughs> yeah. uh, here's one I like, and maybe you could riff on this a bit. This is another thing he says a little bit later to Danglar. For a capitalist to be sad, like the appearance of a comet, presages some misfortune to the world. <laughs> <laughs> and I immediately oh, thought of you when I read that. I like that a lot. Yeah, it's like uh, <laughs> it means that something ba- very bad must have happened because usually capitalists are pretty focused mm-hmm. on maintaining their money and it takes kind of, you know, black swan events for their for poverty to strike them. So for yeah. them to genuinely be upset about something <laughs> usually means something pretty terrible has happened. Well, and I think we mentioned, but I can't, like Danglar is like a, a, a financier. Yeah, basically a like, banker. So, I but he's he's got his thumb on the pulse of like what we might now call the stock market, yes. right? Or like the um, the ebbs and flows of the more financial sector of the world. And the reason that these quotes are so great in the book is that they're all tongue in cheek. Yes, yeah. Because the count knows exactly why Danglar is upset about everything <laughs> and exactly what's happening to him because he's doing it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, I just thought that was an interesting meditation on. Oh yeah, I guess if the financiers or the Wall Street guys are pretty depressed, then bad we're things in are, trouble, yeah, right? Bad things are happening. Um, what was it? Do you ever see the movie Margin Call? Which I, I think, haven't actually seen it. I know I need to. Yeah, but. it's the it's the movie on like the discovering of the two thousand and eight financial collapse. Right, right, right. It came out a little earlier than the like the Big Short was the really big movie yes. made about it. This one, although it had like Kevin Spacey and Zachary Quinto, um, this was a little earlier. And it's just interesting to see the panic of all of these like Wall Street guys in that movie. Yeah. This is interesting. So I, I thought that was a funny. Well, it's little... like yeah, because it's weird. You when you build up some kind of empire or you you, you know you've attempted to build something and then it's like watching it disappear before mm-hmm. your eyes. Yeah. Right? So I guess if you see any sad capitalists out there, it presages you know some great bad. misfortune. Or unless you're part of the uh, revolution. Right. Or maybe, maybe that'll make you very happy. shorting it. And then, uh, <laughs> even, but, it, but that's the great part about the big short, actually, is even when they're right, they're sad. Because mm-hmm. they're like, oh, we were betting against America, essentially. Yeah, true. I mean, I'm thinking more of like the kind of would-be modern socialist revolutionaries who oh, yes. generally spend Eat a the good, rich. Well, or and, and in the meantime, do a lot of their posting in Starbucks or something yes. like this. Yes, yes. But nevertheless, there's something to chew on legitimately of... Because essentially then the question is, well, how much of our money and our finances and our wealth do we want to put into the finance world Yeah, versus things that maybe are a little bit more tangible and real <laughs> not just moving numbers around you know which is kind of what danglar does yeah and so a lot of a lot of number moving so maybe it's a 1840s nod to that stage of late stage capitalism <laughs> yes yes <laughs> and then the only other note i've made about dantes is um the very like last line or page of the book and it's a quote he who has felt the deepest grief is best able to experience supreme happiness. We must have felt what it is to die that we may appreciate the enjoyment of life. I think that that's a really that was the most deeply philosophical point in the book. I thought was it's like a more eloquent reinterpreting of the term. The sweet is never so sweet without the sour, like unless you have that comparison to make. And I don't know. What do you? I, I thought we could just 
chew on that for a second. Yeah, I think this is the most important concept in the book. It's all about expectations, right? It's all and it's all about how you view your lot in life. Mm-hmm. And so many of these people are lusting for more all the time and therefore they're never happy. And they're always scheming for the next end instead of enjoying the present moment. And and we see massive differences between how Mercedes deals with her loss of essentially everything, which she seems content, and uh, how Vilfort's wife is dealing with it, kills herself because she doesn't want to, you know, she doesn't want to be shamed. Or how we how we see um, Danglar, Danglar's wife, who has been stealing from him for the entirety of their relationship. And wasn't she also having an affair with Vilfort? Yes. Yeah, right. Yes. Well, they had a kid. Oh, yes. That's right? a great point. Yeah. <laughs> a kid that they tried to bury alive, and then who comes back later, and he's still alive, and he's part of the revenge. Yes. So it's great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's really well done. But all of these characters, what we're, what we're left with is really happy. And then so we got Valent- Valentine and uh, Maximilian, right? And their whole story plot line. And, and then we've also got the Melfort timeline right and the happiness that those people experience is that they have enough and they know that if they were trying to go out and get more it would take away from their ability to be with one another Mm, yeah that's and uh the count really doesn't believe anyone's good anymore he kind of has this really negative view of human nature everything's betrayal everyone sucks until he is spending time with uh, Malfour's daughter, I believe, and her husband, and realizes there's just a purity and wholesomeness to them. Sorry, do you mean moral? Yeah, moral. Is Moral's daughter starts with a J. Yeah, isn't it Julia? Julia, yes, right. it is Julia. So Julia and her husband, who I'm not even going to try because I don't remember his name. Um, uh, Emmanuel. There we go. I believe, Eman- yes. <laughs> Emmanuel and Julia. Uh, Emmanuel, who was the clerk, who was super faithful to the business and and kind of stayed till the very end and Julia have just this happiness and this wholesomeness and this joy and we see that also with Maximilian and uh and Valentine and that's the other thing we that kind of the count learns is you can't punish future generations for the sins of their fathers but they're the wholesome ones they're the good ones they're the happy ones and these ambitious, driven, money-grubbing, backstabbing, unfaithful people are the miserable ones. Mm, yeah, always looking over their shoulder. Yeah, so yeah, I think I think you've that that ending line is really Dumas' point. Is he's like, look, you're gonna have a lot of misery in your life mm-hmm. if you can't get your your perspective right. Totally. Yeah, I'm trying to orient it towards like even thinking about it in this context of being amidst the coronavirus lockdown, but also like, I mean, we're starting to reopen, but I think it's still going to be a really long process. And just thinking like, if it ever happens again, how much I'm going to enjoy going to a concert yeah, (laughs) or how much I'm going to enjoy like spending time with friends without as much fear, I guess, or just like trepidation or even just like (laughs) going out into the like public life without looking at people like they're just time bombs or, or them looking at me that way. Or like, uh, like just like the kind of 
weird distrust that I kind of see not everywhere, but sometimes it's just um, like, how much more am I going to appreciate having that not be the case if we are ever able, fortunate to, enough to go back to a world where we kind of, maybe when there's a vaccine or something like it's a little bit more normal or even um, I guess just shaping it in like perspective. Right. Cause I don't know if I've told this story before on the podcast, but one of the best things that ever happened to me was that when I was 15, I got to go to Romania and see what it was like there for especially some orphans. And I just can't forget this little anecdote where the joy that was brought to the faces of the kids where we were at when we brought like this $5 shitty soccer ball that they didn't even have grass to play on. They just had to play on cement or dirt (laughs) and they were so excited. And then when I got back to Canada, the, um, just the, the, the disconnect between that and, and the kind of anger and annoyance that my soccer teammates had from the $270 cleats, like the blisters they got from those things. Right. And I wonder if in some way those, kids in Romania as they grow are going to be able to enjoy life more than my soccer teammates. Right. Now that's not an argument for not like trying to improve the material conditions of places, but, but I think there's something in that poverty. Well, not poverty. Yeah. Poverty. I mean, Dumas obviously thinks there's a bit of a nobility to poverty and, and sees the common man in the same way that someone like GK Chesterton or CS Lewis would see the common man as, perhaps more noble or with having more moral character than someone who isn't. Well, especially because the beginning of this book is such a tragedy. Let's think of the story of the Buddha. Like he, Dantes is punished for his virtues, not his vices. Cause you, you read about him and he, he's, He's an interesting story because he's not like Jesus, right? Jesus, uh, you, one of my favorite uh, uh, phrases for, that you've brought up is uh, Jesus was like, the different religions are started by different people, right? Jesus was kind of a hippie in the desert, right? And in the case of the Buddha... Jesus definitely would have went to Woodstock. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> he would have been there. He probably wouldn't have done any drugs or anything, but he would have been there. Those are the, you know... Smiling the whole time. And then the Pharisees would have been like, oh, look at who you're hanging out with. <laughs> But he was a prince who was like, everything was not shown to him, right? Uh, No poverty, no disease, no death, nothing. And then when he came to the realization of those things, it was really traumatizing and it changed his whole perspective. So I think it is possible to have changes in perspective, no matter your circumstance. But the thing that I think the poor have is they're not desensitized to blessings so they can be more easily grateful that doesn't mean they necessarily are right i think there's a lot of people who live in poverty who are who are miserably bitter at their lot in life Mm. i mean think of the the alcoholic parent that beats their children right that's common in poverty i guess my point in all of that is you can, I think you can garner proper perspective regardless mm. of your circumstance. And mm-hmm. I think we see that in the case of Mercedes. Yeah. Right? She goes from being a fisherman's daughter, <laughs> an orphan, right, to being a countess, mm-hmm. essentially. I don't think Fernand ever becomes a count. He's just very wealthy. Yeah. He's like a count nominally, but not actually, or yeah. something like that. <laughs> yeah. So 
I mean, he, he doesn't come. He's, he certainly doesn't come from royalty of any kind. In the book, I right. must specify. Sure. Then she's the countess, and then she goes decides to join a convent. Now, I don't. We don't know if she was happy with Fernand or not, but mm. her perspective, all like she doesn't. I mean, they, it's talked about, right? It's it's recognized in the book that her perspective seems solid, whereas other characters don't seem to have that kind of peace. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I was thinking about this too when, when I was reading it. There's this, um, like, there's the experiential component too of like, you might not be able to make good decisions or even like contented decisions until you've experienced terrible things so you actually realize the value of the good decisions or the good things right i remember one time hearing douglas murray say the line of there's a large swath of people in the world that can't be convinced of good ideas until they see what happens to them experientially through their opposites (laughs) and then and then all you can do so so he says so maybe all you can do is be there with the good ideas after that happens (laughs) <laughs> wow, I really like that. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I, I consider myself one of the people who had to learn the hard way in a lot of areas. Like, let's take smoking, for example. Like, I knew it was bad, but I had to I had to come to the realization that it was, like, negatively impacting me in, in a n- number of different ways. Right. Outside of the ones that everyone warned you about before. I was like, okay, I got to get this out of my life. Mm. So, Yeah. Uh, and I, there's a lot of area, learning well, the hard way. I wonder if then part of like maturing or wisdom is even like being able to slowly decrease the number of bad decisions, like forego the bad decisions before you have to experience them. Yeah. <laughs> like that seems to be what was, that could be a good definition for wisdom. <laughs> it's just learning how to not need the bad experience to know that you don't want it. You yeah. Know, right. Or or because like it might not even be something you've experienced before, but it's like, well, this thing is of the category of other things I've experienced that were negative, so maybe I'll just forego it this time. <laughs> and so anyway, we're gonna move into our friends. So the first couple notes I have are on Faria <laughs> or Faria. Yeah. What an impressive guy. He made all of the stuff himself while imprisoned. And I thought he... this is like kind of a hopeful message for isolation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this guy is obviously a genius i mean he writes a treatise on uh italy becoming a single nation state on a shirt with his own blood essentially it seems or maybe wine and his own blood he's memorized it seems like i think he he says there's really only like 30 or 40 books that you need to know inside out which is still insane he seems to have a practical knowledge of almost an unlimited number of things. So, yeah, I mean, he's not a big character in the book. No. Well, he's big in setting Dante's up. Yeah. But he's not in it very much. No. And and we don't get a lot of his character built out. But I, I just, I do find him to be a lot of fun. I I enjoyed him as a character. He seems to be relatively optimistic. And he's great in the movie, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's a he's a he's an enjoyable part I, of the book. I, so I think the thing I liked the most about him was his relationship to learning and to creativity and like personal achievement through those endeavors. So he had like a relationship with education in a way you might have with a best friend. Yeah, and I felt very compelled by that. 
I was like, yeah, like I feel, I mean, we did Goodwill Hunting. Like we, he talks about how, yeah, he's got friends. He's got Nietzsche. He's got, you know, Dumas. He's got, you know, the different people he talks about. And it just, I liked this, his ability, like if you just take it as motif, Faria's ability to stay good humored and sane in the most terrible place was because of his ability to not be disconnected from his books and his learning and his thinking. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's so there's like a, that's really powerful. There's a message there. Like the life of the mind is a vibrant one and it can keep you sustained in, in some of the worst places. Ah, I love that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Don't neglect. I think a lot of people take really good care of their bodies and they, and they try to like take really care of their social situations and these are incredibly important things to do, but you know, the mind. One of my favorite Sam Harris isms is the mind is is a muscle too. Like, and if you don't work it out, it can it can atrophy. And the thing is, that's going to be the thing that sustains you when you're by yourself, right? Like, what social life matters when when you're by yourself? Well, I what, mean, does your does your I mean, your body's physical health matters, but its appearance doesn't really <laughs> but i mean what really is going to matter to you is what do you have to think about and do you have things to think about well i feel i feel very strongly about this part of the story cuz i as you know i spend a lot of time reading yes <laughs> and yes even watching tv shows that yes it's part entertainment but i love just getting more information about storytelling techniques and just all the little things and i guess it's just kind of a a, a what would you a personality quirk where i like to it's i kind of feel like in one sense i'm pre-preparing to be able to know what's going on when i later in my life come across a knowledgeable person who's talking about something the kind of metaphor i use is that to me reading is like building a spider web and every book you read is another layer around the edge of your spider web and as you start to catch more and more flies in your spider web you're realizing that you would never have caught that fly if you hadn't read those books to make those threads at the end of your spider web and then you and then the big question is well what flies am i still missing now right without and so i i just think of it like in that way and the joy so like there's the joy of reading the book and then the joy of being able to know that you could talk about that book in the future with someone intelligently, hopefully anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, well, and you get just, you know, I've had people ask before, well, aren't you afraid that you're going to run out of things to talk about? Well, I'm never afraid of that. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been afraid. And I, Do you think we'll ever run out of stories for this yeah, podcast? Yeah, like, that's what I'm saying. Never. Like, we're, that's never going to happen because... There's always things to talk about. The like life is incredibly interesting and mm. intricate, yeah. and uh, I think that's my favorite part of this story too. Is that Edmund gets woken up to a whole world that he didn't know. He was already a very alive, vibrant person in kind of his sailing life, and like had become excellent at that. And I think mm. excellence is so important in living you, you you should want to achieve excellence in things and that's why he's a bit of a superhero and why he's so able to do these intricate things is because when he really commits himself to understanding a thing he learns that thing. yeah i know totally hey it's so good yeah it's really um good. so yeah i loved that i i liked that that was what i got most out of the abbey and and you think about like 
What a great story for the translation of theoretical knowledge into ability in practice. Hey, just like the way the transformation of the count from Dantes to like the most cultured person in the book is fantastic. Not only is the count the most competent person to bribe (laughs) the smugglers and to figure out who to talk to. He's also the most interesting person at the dinner parties because he knows the most. Yes. Right. Yes. Like he's just like, he's so rounded. And the difference is with Faria, we get the joy of that. We really see his happiness in all of this. And and so that was so good about him. And the only other thing I have on him, if there's more you want to talk about too, is um, he, he says the line that I know you like to say, which is, Kibono, yes. <laughs> who benefits? I, I, so why don't you riff on Kibono? For oh a minute? man, <laughs> I love this. It's in the context of the book where he's trying to figure out, like he's trying to help Dantes figure out why he's in jail in the first place. Yes. So Kibono is, I think, an essential idea for anyone who wants to genuinely figure out why things are the way they are, and it gets taken by conspiracy theorists and blown up a lot. But I think understanding. When you, when you see something happen that isn't just natural causes, asking yourself who's benefiting from this is, is, is good for two reasons. The first reason is it can allow you to be wary of people utilizing events to, um, you know, to manipulate you. But the second is when you begin thinking in that light, you can then be someone who says, oh, there's an opportunity here. Well, this is exactly the moment where Dantes realizes he hasn't had guile. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. In, in the story, this is the, this is like the transformation to that last trait he needs to be a superhero. Yes. Yes, right? because before that he's just an innocent. Yeah. Now he's understanding motives. Now he's realizing that not every this is such an important thing. Not everyone's like you. Yeah. Not everyone thinks like you. And there are and different incentives that you would never take or even notice that other people are going to strive for all the time. Yeah. Right? Live their whole lives based on. And knowing that and perceiving that is one he, of the first steps to understanding. Dantes could not even comprehend the notion of Villefort saving his own skin by throwing him in prison. The immorality of that wouldn't even occur to Dantes, so he can't even think about why it's happening. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I, I like that you also. <laughs> I, well, I think it's so. I think understanding motivation, we, and we've talked about incentives before, but understanding a person's incentives and therefore their motivations, and you really understand the person. Mm. And at a at a more macro level, realizing these, like I, I feel like in leadership, or if you're like a manager, or you're high up, like understanding the incentives. Is so crucial, right? And and doing your best, if you want to be like profitable business or an ethically operating business or something like, adjusting the variables in the social and and even geographical or political environment to the extent that you can to incentivize people to kind of do better, to be better. Right? Yes, like give people a speed boost. Yeah, <laughs> towards things, right? Like make it in people's interest to want to be good. Yeah, don't don't just put them on some empty plane and give them no point of reference and then <laughs> yeah. say go find something. Yeah, it's like, or like it's your job kind of thing. Like it's it's I don't know. It's um, incentive is so tied to motivation and like inspiration and motivating people. Well, towards and, and good this incentives. book is a great reflection reflection on incentive and motivation because the things that end up trapping all of our villains are 
their motivation. Mm, it is a bit of a conspiracy novel, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because because our villains are so involved in conspiracies. And 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 where does uh, Dante's attack them? He attacks them on their weaknesses because of the, the, their motivations. He knows their motivations. Yeah, and he's it's got like, and he gets he all calls the, one of the He calls him a capitalist, right? He's like, and then he takes all their money, his money <laughs> away, because he knows what that person values. You know, it reminds me of I'm I'm watching the show Ray Donovan right now, and you mentioned this motif as well from the show Billions, where everyone's just got dirt on everyone else, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And the count, the it's an asymmetrical. The count has dirt on everyone, and no one even knows who he is, <laughs> which is. Which really is part a, of the a great joy. place to be, right? So yeah, I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts on Faria? No. Okay. I made a note on Moral, the uh, Mr. Moral, the ship owner. I loved this part. So it's it's when he's losing money, and it's just before uh, the Count saves his business by, I can't remember exactly, but he gives him enough money to not go bankrupt and to be sustainable. But I loved that, speaking of <laughs> motivations, Morals is the compulsion to pay his sailors even while he's broke. The thing that he's bemoaning isn't that he's going to go out of business, but he can't pay his sailors. Now, sure, he's probably also sad about the fact that he's going to go out of business. But like, to me, this is like a huge component of credibility, especially in the financial world or the economic world, is like being able to pay, not necessarily pay your debts, but like, well, obviously that too, but also okay, more before any of that, I got to make payroll. Yeah. <laughs> like I have make, to pay my employees. Or I don't have that, a business. And, and I don't have a business. And it's like, to me, that kind of person also deserves to be called a capitalist, but the good kind, mm-hmm. right? And so it's like not one dimensional. I, I guess it's like showing an ethic, it's someone who's trying to be an ethical actor in the free market. Right. Right? And And how... It's not a one-sided story and how valuable that kind of person is too because, truth be told, a lot of people in that era needed things transported over ships. Yes. And you wanted a trustworthy, reliable business to do that for you, right? So, yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's just that. <laughs> no, no. I think you're on to an important point and I think it's actually what makes him a moral character, right? Is, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> uh, is There's two things. It's interesting because in this time period, killing yourself was seen as, you know, somewhat honorable. It's almost in the in the Japanese sort of sure, yeah. sense of honor that we, we It's like encounter. the last way it's, you could save the, it. Yeah, it's the last way that you can be main or he wants to maintain the honor of his family too. And and what does he care about? Well, he's never missed paying a debt. <laughs> right. I mean when the sailors come back, they've been the, the ship has been wrecked. Right. Yeah. His yeah, fortune's yeah. lost, <laughs> but they're saved. He's happy for them. Yeah. 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 Like he's gen and then he's like, oh no, like how am I going to keep you employed? Mm. You might have to f- go find someone else. I think reflecting on another person and caring about them, even in a moment of personal maybe defeat or despair, mm. that is a really huge sign. Sure. That you're a quality individual. Well, and. It's a, I mean, I was, we'll talk about this more later because it's, it's kind of the inverse I found of Fernand in the end in that I'll make this point more with him because I think it's deeper on the other side of the scale. But Jordan Peterson talks about being a good player of a game because games are iterative and they take on different mm, specific rules, but not general rules when it comes to like human interaction, right? So if Moral, Mr. Moral is a good player in the ship owner employee employer relationship that's going to get people coming back to play with him again later like that's going to 
that's going to select for more quality employees because they're going to feel the necessity of doing the good job because they know that they can depend on him if things are down for them kind of thing. So it's like a, it's a, it's more sustainable long-term, right? Yeah. It's not just one game. We're not playing one Mm. game of chess. We're playing a thousand games of chess. And if you cheat in some of those games or you, you know, or you're, maybe not magnanimous in victory or whatever. Right. Maybe the other people isn't, person isn't going to want to play with you anymore. That's a thought that I've been having a lot in the sense that of the idea of trust and building trust with another person. And that's something that moral does, right? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's everyone. Well, not everyone. And that's the interesting thing is th- those people can be taken advantage of to some degree. <laughs> and he does get taken advantage of. Yes, uh, it's but true. But only... But not fundamentally, because mm. he still seems to be a a smart and capable person who's you know who's just and fair. Mm-hmm. But he he does get his you know because of his honesty, he seems to be falling on hard times. Sure, but I think he's also a victim, not nearly as much as Dantes, but he's a victim of the miscarriage of justice of Dantes. Yes, right. Like he loses his most competent, trustworthy person, and then other things fall apart because. Obviously, Danglar's ambition is well, not Danglar just leaves, right? Yeah. And he just goes and, yeah. and gets a reference that actually gets him to where he is, mm-hmm. but never does anything for Moro. Yeah, so I, I liked that little part of him. The character Haiti has this great line, which really resonated with me. When three great passions, such as sorrow, love, and gratitude, fill the heart, ennui can find no place. Ooh. <laughs> and so... Oh, I do like I that. I think one of the themes in general of maybe partly this podcast, but also just kind of our lives, is um, finding sustainable alternatives to nihilism. Yes. <laughs> yes. And ennui, right? Those states are so depressing, I think. Like, this is why I think it's so important to fill your time with creative endeavors and to find deep, awesome relationships with other people and even set yourself up for potential heartache because you can't have ennui if you're sorrowful. Right. right? Not not intentionally sorrowful, true, but true. it's like worth the risk, I guess, kind of thing. So I, I really liked that line, but I didn't really have any other thoughts about her other than she just played an important plot role. Yeah, she's in a, yeah, she doesn't, she's kind of, but she's very one-dimensional, but mm-hmm. uh, but obviously uh, yeah, important. So of all of Dante's friends, the ones I was most intrigued with as a character, and I think he got the most time as a character in the book, was Maximilian, which yes. is Mr. Morrill's son. And I like him for a couple reasons. Because he knows and admits to his own conflict of interest with Valentine and was is willing to kill himself rather than not be with her. Yeah, now, I wasn't sure about that part of it. But <laughs> it was like he was aware of the conflict of interest there. Right. And then also, I loved this line that he says, and not suffer ourselves to be put to death like sheep, which only defend themselves with size. And I was like, that's being an adult. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And Maximilian seems to have the same compulsion that I feel of like, look, if you are going to destroy me, I'm not going to be pleading. (laughs) <laughs> right or sighing as he puts it yeah i'm gonna um, i'm gonna fight back the fight back and and or or at least like i i feel like in our culture there's kind of like an assumption of sheepness when it comes to i don't even know like just politicians assume it of the population or management assumes it of the front line or it's just like the it's kind of like the base assumption is like okay well we need to put our kid gloves on for everyone <laughs> right. I'm like, I don't want that. 
I'm not a, I don't want to be treated that way. In some senses, I can be a thorn in people's side because I'm not as easily pacified <laughs> in ways right. that pacify a, a, a lot of other people in terms of like, no, I'm not, I don't like the corporate buzzword game. I don't like the kind of platitudes. Like, can you give a better answer, please? I'm, I'm here tapping my toes, expecting a better answer than that. <laughs> so right. don't just think you're going to get a sigh out of me. So I think that, that, and that can be like a, a temperament or an attitude thing. But one of my struggles with modern life is the assumption that everyone is a child and they must be treated that way. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's just an observation. No, I mean, I'm going to have to think about that more because I think you're right. There's I- a context of, well, we need to just kind of pacify the multitudes as opposed to, and and often I'm a member of the multitude and yet I don't want to be pacified. I want to be right individualized. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. I think this happens a lot and it happens to all of us, I think, when we slip into the error of categorization. Humans are pattern-seeking beings. We can't individualize every single person that we pass in the street or we, or, or we interact with or we even talk to so we we put them in these boxes right and we say oh you know that's a re- a normal person right or or <laughs> right. normie that's like a thing now right oh yeah, you're right. such a normie basic or yeah like who doesn't like fall and pumpkin spice lattes like fuck you all <laughs> <laughs> roasted <laughs> um no but what i mean what i mean is when we t- make people into categories we dehumanize them and i think that's the problem, right? And too often, when people are dehumanized enough, they begin to think of themselves as subhuman, as not special or or not having value. The same as, say, a, you know, let's say a celebrity versus a non-celebrity. Mm. You know, a lot of people care more about what a celebrity thinks. Like, if, if someone they don't know tweeted something nasty then they wouldn't care but imagine if like someone they really cared about that would be devastating Mm -hmm. and it's be it's because of categorization i think and i think that's a huge problem Mm -hmm. that humans have i think it's one of our basic errors that Mm -hmm. we constantly commit right is the idea that oh I'm going to put you in this box so that I know where to pull you out of from. <laughs> right? Definitely. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. I And that happens all the time with uh careers. Yeah. Right? Right. Where it's like, "Oh, you're a nurse? Okay, now I, you're a nurse now. Yeah. You're a teacher." And people perpetuate that by living based on that being their <laughs> identity. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess um and I and I understand why this is the case, but it's just a total it's it's to me it's as simple as a framing difference in that I feel like I live in a lowest common denominator society and I want to live in a highest common denominator society. Yeah. And I know that that's kind of foolish at one level, but I still feel the pull towards my base assumption is highest common denominator and let the populace not reach that, then assume that they can't and approach it lowest common denominator. Now, obviously, the real way to fix that problem is the improvement of the populace, not the change of attitudes of the leadership of, of any given scenario, right? Or even the person who you're saying is pigeonholing any career. I would note, though, I think there is a tangible example of this actually being the case, though, is that I think the rise of podcasts and the rise of 
really complicated narrative TV shows shows that there's an appetite for deeper thinking yeah. in the world. Part of the reason more conventional television, it just assumed people were stupider than I think that they are. <laughs> right? Like yeah. Game of Thrones, say whatever you will about the ending of season eight. There are like 50 characters to follow. And there are very intricate plot lines. And nobody seems to struggle with it at all. And it's, yeah, you know, winding four-hour Dan Carlin podcasts. Yes. But it's like super pop. So I think there is, I think I always use the um, analogy of like, okay, well, maybe what could possibly happen if maybe now we have two out of 10 parents with their arms crossed, unimpressed with the Board of Education's platitudes? What happens if you get eight out of 10 parents... (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> in the populace with arms crossed, unimpressed with the platitudes of the Board of Education, <laughs> right? And like, change. Yeah, so it's you don't even need eight out of ten; you just need like four out of ten. No, I know, but I want ten out of ten. Right? <laughs> Fair. <laughs> it would just depend on a different category, but like highest common denominator, treating people like individuals, and like having that be the base assumption. And I know that that's way more work and way harder. And the only way to ever actually make it is for to have it be a grassroots thing. It's like, no, I'm not impressed with your. Uh, okay board of education minister you gave no answers and we're not sheep do better right right yeah (laughs) and uh, as a citizen of this country and an intelligent thinking person please do better right right (laughs) so well one of the biggest problems with all that is people don't want to actually do the research and think through this and so they just hear again it's it's just easily putting something into a box good bad right wrong yeah no you're right ugly but i think it that's part of the responsibility of self-growth yes is to be able to come become better than that nuance yeah nuance so that's whingy on one level but also i just was i i i've become very appreciative of the people i come across in the world who are more like max right (laughs) in that scenario do you have any any other thoughts on him i think it is interesting he's like kind of your quintessential romantic character and i'm talking about the time period and the writing more than the I don't know, the modern definition of romantic, <laughs> but like he'd rather die than uh, yeah. without the love of their life. Yeah, but like he, he's saying it that way, not to like as an ultimatum or to make Valentine feel bad, it's but to he like, doesn't want to live he, anymore. He, like he's doing it to demonstrate how much she means to him. It's like, no, I literally can't live without you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I have this conflict of interest where I want you to dump your fiance, but that's not honorable either but i also can't live without you <laughs> so this is problematic so well and then when she's gone or he thinks she's dead uh it's interesting that he agrees to like hold on to life for one more month before he k- kills himself mm-hmm. there is more to be said on that but we could go down that rabbit trail for <laughs> sure yeah, yeah um the only note i have on albert who I think is like a, a genial person in the book. I enjoyed him. He's a little hot under the collar sometimes. And that's really the only note I have is that I found him, he was willing to fight a friend over a trifling and an unsubstantiated trifling. And it's like, this is kind of the problem of honor. Albert wants to fight the count over honor, even though he doesn't know exactly what it's about. Yes. And that's probably maybe just youth, I guess. But also in a culture of honor, you maybe don't interrogate all of the reasons or the intricacies of something before you do something drastic or you can't take back. And I think that's a good warning sign for it, you know? Yeah. And then 
The last note I have on the friend is Mercedes, who again in the book is a much more minor character than she is in the movie. Well, in the movie, she recognizes him because of the way he twirls his hair, but in the book, she recognizes him because of his voice. Yeah. And I made the note, and I know I mentioned this before, but it's one of my favorite quotes, so I'm going to keep putting it on there, is that I think the voice is the fingerprint of the soul. Mm. It's the thing you can't fake about your soul. Right. In one sense, is your voice, both literally and figuratively, right? Like, when we say the author really found their voice, what that expression kind of means is they found that intangible thing that we can't quite define that separates them from everybody else. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Right? I love that. But also, literally, like, your voice might sound similar to other people, but I know it's you. You can right? pick it out. Yeah, yeah. Like it's it's kind of like in the same way that everyone's fingerprint is unique. Everyone's voice is unique. Well, actually, I, I think they did a, a study. I think there's voice recognition software because, <laughs> sure, yeah. because it is actually fully unique, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I, I like that both because it's like kind of literally true and metaphorically vibrant. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I am I, 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 a bit of a, a nerd for when the literal and the figurative where they meet. <laughs> yes. That's the sweet spot <laughs> for my that's, life. <laughs> that's Luke's favorite. So anyway, that brings us to our villains. Of the three, I find Danglar to be the main villain, but V4 very close. Yeah. And then Fernanda distant third. Yeah, especially in the book. Right? Yeah. yeah, that's the funny. In part. the movie, it's kind of switched. Well, yeah, Fernand is the main villain. Yeah, like, and Danglar is like an old man as opposed to a young and, man in the book, and gets arrested. Like, but I thought it was really interesting and important that the the er, the earliest part that Danglar is doing to get Dantes in trouble is lying and gossip about him. It's like this is very Iago like from Othello. Yes, <laughs> yes. The first thing Danglar does. Additionally, when he's writing letters, he knows how to scare Caderousse out of doing the right thing by making him feel he will be in danger. Yeah. It's like that's the oldest trick in the book, hey? Like put fear into people yeah, <laughs> so, to get them to, to do things. That's, to get them yeah. to do things, you know? That's literally, probably, yeah, that's the lowest form of manipulation. Well, so, okay, here's something I didn't quite understand, though. Maybe it's because he was too ambitious, but Caderousse tells Busoni, who's actually the count later on, all of the things that happened, but the count still has him killed anyway later on. Now, is that because he was still greedy and well, wanted I think to steal stuff? Because he ends up thinking of him as a friend or whatever, but right. then it, it's his greed that he kills his wife. He kills the, d- the dealer who's going to pay for the diamond so that he can double up his money. Like, mm-hmm. his greed consumes him and he kind of becomes an evil in the world. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I just kind of lost that in the translation. So anyway, Danglar. Okay. <laughs> One of the fun parts of the book is how he slowly starts to resent his own wife. Yeah, Because he kind of knows she's being unfaithful at some level. He might not know the extent of the affair, but he knows that she's... He doesn't like her. He knows it. He knows it because he does talk about knowing it. Yeah. So he has this one great line. Those with whom I will be in passion are those who eat my dinners, mount my horses, and exhaust my fortune. (laughs) That's like, (laughs) wow. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He hates his wife. Now, in general, I find the villains to be, at the beginning of the book, horrible, and then... As the book goes and you know what's happening to them, just you I wouldn't say it goes as far as to feel sorry for them, but they're kind of pathetic and just out of the loop the whole way, and then they're just done, right? Yeah. But I thought one of the things that was really psychologically resonant was there's a scene in the like kind of last 20% of the book where guards are coming, and he thinks it's coming for him because he has a guilty conscience even when it's not. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's like, wow, this is what... I think Socrates is talking about where it's like, 
injustice is harder on the person doing the injustice than the person doing the just who is having the injustice done to them because they have to live with it yes and always be looking over their shoulder in a sense right and i thought that was captured so well in the book especially with danglar like him he just had a guilty conscience for so much of the latter half you know it's interesting how he doesn't end up with anything that would resemble a kind of life that you'd want and yet he's so wealthy like he's the perfect example of someone who gets what they think they want and it it provides them with nothing mm-hmm. and and then all slowly all just really, losing everything well and all you can really do at that point is try to get more <laughs> yeah right because because he knows his wife is cheating on him he doesn't really seem to have a, any good relation. He has such a poor relationship with his children that he uses them for more money. Mm-hmm. His entire being appears to be in all his relationships are kind of monetary. Yeah. Right. It's like, well, how can I cash in on this? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, he's, I mean, he, he is funny cause he's left to survive, but like, it's almost a greater sorrow for him yeah. to survive. Well, like, he's bereft of any meaning. Yeah. Completely. He has no North star, even when he had all his money. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's the, yeah, the real right. yeah, tragedy right. of his character is that he's he reaps what he sows. Yeah, and he has nothing. Like, mm-hmm. there's there's no soul to him at all. Like, there. Well, because his betrayal of Danglar is out of envy, so he's like rationalizing it to himself that oh well. If you mean his da- betrayal? Uh, no, sorry. Yeah, his betrayal of Dantes is out of envy, so he's rationalizing it to himself by saying, well, without if Dantes is out of the way, my life will be perfect now, and I can have all of the things I want. Where no, he's just unhappy his whole life, and it's because he doesn't have that kind of internal combustion. Of- well, and the point I want to make on this is people. He, I mean, his his primary vice and sin is envy, yeah. right? Which is uh, your hobby horse yeah, on the podcast. I, you know, <laughs> I like to. Well, I just I think it's cancer to happiness. I really do. Yeah, like I, I know I said that, and but it's I also think cancer it's, to meaning. Yes. Oh, right? that's a yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. Because what are you going to do if you get rid of the thing that's making you envious? You still have to do something. Like you have to make a positive step now. Yeah. <laughs> you're just going to sit and exist now that you're. Well, no, you'll probably that- find something else to envy, and and it's obvious that at that point it just becomes this you know negative feedback loop, right? Where right. he can't have anything good because he's consumed by this emotion mm-hmm. that that just ta- it's like a bl- it's uh it's a black hole in inside of him mm-hmm. v fort his family story was the most interesting but i feel like ultimately his case is as simple as wary your ambition because he's a perfect example of the thing you always say of careful who you step on going up because <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna meet you them on the way there. back down right and <laughs> yeah. he 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 probably well he loses the most yes he loses several family members yeah and I guess Fernand loses the most. Uh, yeah, but but V Fort has to live with it. Right? Yeah, yeah. And Fernand doesn't, right? So I don't know if you had any other thoughts on V Fort. I thought he was an interesting character, but I thought as a villain, he was just okay. He did. I, I got his motivation, and now he's being destroyed because his family's being destroyed. Well, the interesting thing about him is that he's so committed to. He's kind of got a rigidity around the law. Yeah. And yet... <laughs> except a, one except, time. <laughs> well, and it's, except when it seems to come to him and his family, right? Like, he doesn't want to investigate murders in his own home. Mm, yes. Right? Because he's afraid of what Of the finds. reputation. Yes. So it's... He is a That's perfect, a big specter also in this book, is reputation. Yeah. He's right. a perfect example of someone who 
who whose reputation is is a it's like that randy and oak tree mm-hmm. that's rotted on the inside yeah he wants to come across as someone who cares about the law wants to come across as someone who's you know committed to justice and that reputation is mm-hmm. more important to him than justice yes yeah agreed so so that another a, warning there yeah a malformed uh first principle his first <laughs> principle is i want people to think well of me and Again, motivation. Mm-hmm. It goes back to if you understand a person's motivation, <laughs> you understand them. But he's destined for this kind of thing then. Like that's yeah. kind of part of the wisdom of the book is these malformed motivations, this is the end game. Even if there's not someone perpetuating the revenge on you, the end game is you're going to find the dustbin of life somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Even if it's your own empty psychology. So, right. So unless you're like a total psychopath and you don't care about that. <laughs> and then with with Fernand, and I know I've made this point before, but I thought it was so crucial. Like he to me, he's the least interesting of the three villains and he's actually in the book the least. But the most important thing is he behaved and lived in such a way that he would have no friends and people would delight in his downfall should he lose his title. Ah. So when it comes to pointing out that he dishonorably betrayed his charge of these greek monarchs to the turks he had no defenders right yeah, no one came out and said that's yeah. not who fernand is yeah, yeah. because it's, because no one cared about the only reason he ever had any esteem in his society is because of his title and i know i've harped on this before it was like yeah. titles are but nicknames it's kind of that dickens line of it's the opposite of that Dickens line in David Copperfield when he's writing about himself. David's writing about David, but really Charles Dickens is writing, writing about, about Charles, Charles Dickens, Dickens and yeah. saying, the more uh, acclaim I got, the more I thought I had to try to earn it. Yes. And the, that's opposite with Fernand. The more acclaim he gets, the less he does to be honorably disposed to that title. Ah, that's a great throwback. You I'm know, loving that. And you just see it. Like, Fernand, once he's lost the title, he's got nobody. No one's in his corner. No. And no one cares because he didn't live in that way. So, oh, I don't like people like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, is there anything else about our bad guys you have any thoughts on before we move on? I guess the part that uh, I kind of want to highlight for all of these, but particularly Fernand, hmm. is the issue that arises for him over the course of this story, but especially at the beginning, Mm -hmm. it isn't envy. It's um, jealousy. Mm. It's it's wanting something that someone else has, right? It's coveting. Coveting, that's the word. And not only just has, but he covets Mercedes' love. Yeah. Right? Not just that it's Dante's, but it's also like her spirit or her attitude that he covets like he obviously needs external validation Mm. for feelings of fulfillment Mm -hmm. he seems completely consumed by needing her particular validation right the interesting thing about it is as it progresses he doesn't become the kind of person that would have earned that validation and well no because right? he didn't have to earn it exactly he just kind of like inherited it <laughs> but yeah <laughs> she was just so sad and he was there yeah and that was it oh well, friend zone and <laughs> but there's nobody else right and how many relationships are often like that very depressing right yeah <laughs> and then well it's interesting we can go into this on the movie but i think that's a great tragedy that needs and then he commits suicide at the end mm-hmm. and it's because she's in shame him. In shame because she, because she and and his son Albert 
or Albert have left him yeah and they've left him because it was all a facade and it was always all all always a facade. well i could have told him that well, <laughs> right sure. like like i just was um even when i was reading it i was thinking fernand how is this gonna work like yeah. okay so your solution to the fact that mercedes doesn't love you is to get rid of dantes so now she'll love you like that doesn't solve the problem that you have in the first place and now like you say he just all that happens is he he doesn't even try. He doesn't improve. He doesn't like become more lovable. He's no. just like, oh, okay, I got what I wanted. It's so it's that it's that shortcut silver bullet <laughs> syndrome, right? It goes. Yeah, but it made me think like, does he even care? Here's and this is a big sticking point for me, obviously, and I think it would be for anybody who reflects on this kind of stuff. Is like, does he not even care that she wouldn't actually love him? Right. Duh. All of the experiences I've ever had with women. It mattered a lot to me what they thought about me as opposed to like going through the motions. Yeah, you didn't want them to go through <laughs> Of course the not. That's not authentic. No. That's not a relationship. That's not real. So it's like, Fernand, do you even care what her opinion of you actually is? Well, and I think that that's being consumed by yourself, but in a weird way. It's like you, yourself is some kind of black hole that's just it need that you're trying to throw validation in and and what is how else does he get validation well like he wants to be wealthy and he wants to be uh, prestigious in french society so he commits heinous crimes like selling people into slavery and betraying Mm. his employer and and it seems like patron to some degree yeah true yeah well now i'm just realizing one of the things that's so interesting about this book is that of the three villains, none of them actually... Dantes was not actually their real problem. No. For all no. three of them, right? No. Like, Danglar's real problem is that he was unlikable and no one wanted to promote his career because he's a dick. Yes. <laughs> Fernand's problem is that, well, I mean, it's not a deep problem, but he just wasn't loved by Mercedes, so he needed to either meet somebody else or move on or figure something else out. That wasn't Dantes. Like, Dantes wasn't the reason why Mercedes didn't love him. She just didn't love him, right? Yeah. Like, that was... Those are two separate issues. The <laughs> fact that she... Lo- like, even if Dantes wasn't in the picture, I don't think she would have loved Fernand. I think that she got with him out of loneliness, maybe, or... Um, yeah, and just a little bit of despair. Yeah, and despair. Probably, like, he, yeah. he obviously encroached on her during a really weak moment yeah. in her life, which is also, like... There should be a term emotional predation. Well, and let's not... <laughs> right? and this is something that... Uh... Sorry, just to finish the thought, oh, yeah, with Vfort... No, no, it's okay. It wasn't Dantes. It was the fact that his dad was a Bonapartist, and Dantes just happened to be the person who get the letter. Right? So all three of them screwed him over for things that were not actually about him. But really, the yeah, it's them. It's something internal <laughs> to each right. of them. And, and that's actually how he punishes them, too. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, is by taking that thing oh, interesting. that broke them in the first place. Good book place. insight. Good yeah. book insight, yeah. So this is something that um, one of my ex-girlfriends, I'd say, really powerful insights that she had. She was always like, I never want to need a man. Which, I mean, some people are like, oh, that's, you know, garbage. It's not. Mm. Because the situation that Mercedes is in is she's an orphan. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have any means of income really and no security. She had the love of her life right. who was going to, you know, she was going to build a life with, 
but she needed in this context, and this is like a historical thing, she was kind of in the situation where she did need somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, he was just ready to swoop in. Right. And I mean, and like you said, in a moment of weakness. And I think that's one of the good things that our society has done is it's, well, the West has created a world in which it's possible. Right. Like for a woman to survive. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> this seems so obvious now, but poor Fernand, I guess, didn't know this is that. And in the vein of what you were saying, you don't want to need a man. Well, I don't, I don't want to need a uh, woman but i want to want one yeah yeah <laughs> right and yeah. It's vice versa like i don't i wouldn't want a, a lady to want to need me but i would want her to want to want me yeah <laughs> right yeah it's like that's a completely different attitude and fernand wants mercedes to need him he doesn't want her to want him which is uh, like a categorical difference of how the, your life's gonna go yeah. Like, what does he think? Does he think it's just going to be all roses and petunias now that she has no choice but to be with him? So I win. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> like, I just, I couldn't believe him. And why you would even want that? Yeah. Right? Yeah. It doesn't. Anyway, that was the point that I wanted to make. On <laughs> no, that's good because I, it's kind of like why they're vulnerable to Dantes is because he's actually auxiliary. He didn't actually do anything terrible to deserve any of this. He just happened for like wrong place, wrong time wrong manifestation of a person well and they're all so worried he's gonna reappear and the reason that they're worried he's gonna reappear is because deep down it's like you it's like i think you said earlier it's the idea that if you know the person who does injustice Mm. is actually right it's soccer it's the whole socrates (laughs) thing right and i think that's the case they're vulnerable because they know (laughs) that that they've guilty conscience you know that righteous anger, to a degree, I guess, is coming after them. Mm-hmm. Be now, sure your sins will find you. Out. Oh yes, that's for sure. Uh, if, if for no other reason that you bring them with you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they'll they'll get you when you're a little bit in a weak moment. Okay, I'm gonna transition. I made a couple notes about the actual just book itself and kind of like Alexander Dumas. This is a lot in this book, and it's one of my favorite things about reading novels, I guess, like, in general, but certainly from this era, is there's just so many references to antiquity in this book, hey? So many Greek, Roman, Egyptian deities, characters, heroes, motifs. It's like... Everyone in this period knew all these well, people. It, well, because <laughs> it was a common language, right? right? Yeah. Like, this was education. If you were educated, if you could read, you knew Greek and Latin, mm-hmm. right? Well, and I guess because it was Napoleon that kind of opened up Egypt to the West in the in the True. modern in the, the world, modern, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, it was him that went there. And so that's like, it would have been, I guess, pretty fresh in the public consciousness, Egypt. Just yes. at this period yeah. of time. And uh, I don't know, like, I just, I love being reminded of this in a book. Like, that this writer obviously also knew about all this kind of stuff that, uh, you know, <laughs> how many TV shows or movies do we watch in 2020 that have just casual references to Cicero <laughs> or Fargo. Seneca? Well, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Or, or like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know. Theseus. Or, no, I know. There's not enough it's at just, all. It's, and like, the thing is that these stories are so great. They're so great. And I, I loved uh, seeing that. I thought this was a point you would like, is that uh, this maybe is the greatest book I've ever read, and it's because it's French of this era. The weaving of the personal and the political 
is incredible in this book, hey? Yes. Just the intrigue. There's a lot of intrigue in the book between Nortier, the dad, Dieppinay, Valentine, Villefort. Like, just they're like their midnight meetings in in under the tree, like in whispered, muted whispers. Yeah, about so the... many conspiracies, oh, like in the old. In the, not... I loved it. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I I agree. I think and it's it is kind of it does feel u- u- unique to that time, right? Where where politics mattered so much more. It felt like. Well, because I'm... <laughs> I mean, it's like when we were talking about the Patriot, right? right? Where you know, big things were happening in the mm. world. Well, and it, it's a pretty tumultuous time in French history. Yeah, <laughs> and wow. I would want to learn more French history after reading this book, is because it just like there's a lot there. It just what a great culture. Yeah. What what an impressive civilization civilization fire breathing passionate culture of people yeah, that's like, true you know that's I mean? a really good point obviously in canada we have quebec and so we have that a little bit too and i personally ha- don't know many people from quebec but the ones i've met i've very much enjoyed their company and there's a there's a fire you know there's a there's a fiery passion to uh, the French sentiment, I think, that I enjoy a lot. Yeah, I'm a big uh, fan of the Quebecois that I know uh, <laughs> there. I spe- uh, yeah, I have a few very close political friends, well, friends, but political friends from Quebec. And it's a totally, like, when they tell me about their view of the world, it's really fascinating mm-hmm. because it's just not something you think about in the same degree in english speaking canada but but also they're very tied to mm-hmm. france right yeah. they think of france the way we think of england i think mm-hmm. uh, and it's pretty cool to even for example i have a friend that i was just talking to tonight who went to saint po in uh, paris mm. which they have uh, they have colleges there that are dedicated to the quebecois right <laughs> like right so <laughs> and just i guess it's hard to think of like any other country around that time that would have just this great intrigue. I mean, Dostoevsky's novel Demons is an awesome meditation on the incipient communism and um, incipient Marxism that was going on in Russia towards the end of the 19th century. But I thought it was masterful. The the weaving of, well, we can't do this because this person is related to this person who was once a royalist, but now maybe they're not. And it's like, and who was it? The the guy that, the the, the whole s- sequence of the book where the Count figured out how to make the guy not marry Valentine yes. because it was Nortier, who is her grandfather, who killed his father. But he only did it so that she could be free to marry Max, yeah. right? Because like, he knew. Because he really, oh, yeah. I loved that sequence. I just was like, "This is riveting stuff. Uh, this is great storytelling." Yeah, that whole segment. Of yeah, the, and, and there's and a few of them like that. Like you said, it's kind of episodic, right? So you get a few of those, but they feel like they're kind of contained in an episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This would so, actually make a great TV show. Yeah, absolutely. It would. And I, even that would be a great TV show. And I, yeah, they should. Or like, uh, I mean, I guess because we know the ending, it would have to be like a limited series run, maybe or a couple seasons. But still, it would be an awesome show. Yeah. If they could act like, and then do an actual adaptation of the book. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, they did that adaptation of uh, Pride and Prejudice. BBC did that's like five hours long. It's really good. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I yeah, I rec- it's it's like incredibly faithful to the book. 
Well, perhaps embarrassingly, as a host of a podcast that is about books, I've never read Pride and Prejudice before. Well, we might, we might <laughs> we have, have to do one, one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we have that, to do an Austin eventually. Is that okay, Austin? I, I, I often get Austin. To me, it's Austin and the Bronte sisters. They're this, oh, they're so different, though. Well, I know, but those are like, I, I can't remember you, who oh, which wrote is what. Which, right, like, right, I know yeah. there's like, okay, there's Emma, there's Wuthering Heights, there's... Uh, Jane Eyre, Jane Eyre, yep. Jane Sense Eyre. and Sensibility, Sense and Sensibility, Pride, Pride and Prejudice. Like I know those books, and I know that I think those five books were written by those three people, but I can never really pick out which is which. Right, right. <laughs> so anyway, that's neither here nor there. No. <laughs> uh, apologies all around <laughs> to all the women who love those books. We apologize for Luke's sake. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know they're out there. The next little line from the book that I just had to write down because I thought it was a great insight into human nature uh it's the scene where people find out about fernand his peers are finding out about his deeds and dumas writes for men who are truly generous are always ready to compassionate when the misfortune of their enemy surpasses the limit of their hatred so it's like i dislike this person but i feel like the thing that's happened to them is greater than what i actually hate them for so i have a little bit of sympathy for them i was like i do have i feel like i felt that before (laughs) i feel like i have too right like um where it's like where someone you really don't like it's something really terrible happens to them yeah it's like like, uh i didn't dislike them that much (laughs) yeah i think about this a little bit actually in my hockey playing days where there'd be guys on other teams that i really didn't like i thought they were kind of cheap but then if they ever got injured, I was like, oh, I don't feel good about that. You know, it's like, that's more than I would be wishing on Right, <laughs> right. That surpasses my frustration. Because unless a person is just a straight-up monster and horrible, you always can kind of see the humanity in there somewhere. And it's like, oh, I don't... I think I do... I think ethically, there's an internal sense in most people of proportion. Yeah. Of justice, of payback. And so if the punishment is way greater than the crime, it doesn't feel right either. And so I, I, I loved that. I was just like, that's such a great insight, Dumas. And that, yeah. If that, uh, but I like that writing. Like, I just like how he phrases that. For men who are truly generous are always ready to compassionate when the misfortune. It's like compassionate, like a verb. Yeah, it's used <laughs> I love, there. Like, It's so great. I love these old books because of their, he's like that. Yeah, their usage. And then the last... Um, thing that this book really reminded me of is it is winding <laughs> it takes a long time to get to a payoff point or a plot point yes, right yes and you know it reminded me a lot of um the show's better call saul and breaking bad because there are a lot of scenes you're not sure at first why this scene is happening or where it's going but it always ends up at a really good cathartic moment and one of them i thought of is eugenie who's the daughter of danglar leaving him and just like how down the path, I think it's Benedetto or Ben Benedetto who gets caught by her. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> you're not sure why you're getting pages of this person's story who you haven't really seen in the book. And, and those shows I mentioned, like there's a scene in Better Call Saul where Mike is absolutely convinced that his car is being bugged. And he just takes apart his entire car. And it's like a scene that lasts for about six minutes. And it's just him like systematically dismantling his car. And why it's why these scenes are so great in these shows that I love is that the writers, they don't just tell you that their characters are frustrated. They show you how they're frustrated. Right. 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 And like you can That's see that anger. Just be- really bu- good storytelling. <laughs> yeah. Right. Is, yeah. 
And that's why, again, this is a TV show, this book, is just the long scenes that don't seem to be going anywhere but always end up somewhere yeah. where you're like, and then the payoff's greater because you like, wow, what a good storytelling. So do you have any story-centric thoughts or book or writing or Dumas? What I really like about his writing style is, is something you actually mentioned earlier, but I'll say more on it, is his description of real places. Mm, right. You mentioned that all the a lot of the big islands are, are... I think he intentionally tries to grab hold of the the spirit and the heart of a city or a or a town yeah. and yeah, really yeah, sure. um describes it to you like there's that scene where he kind of describes how there's the jetty off of Marseille that's like mm. its own town yeah and and how it developed and even gives you a little history of it i love it when authors do that mm. uh, like when steinbeck does that with the history of the valley oh, yes. in definitely in california in uh, east of eden mm. but I, I don't know. It's just something that I really love about writers. And I think when a writer can do it well, it's it's super enjoyable. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of really great sweeping descriptions of the places where they're going or just like the roads in France, right? Or yeah. the, the waterways to go to different parts of Italy or wherever they're going. Or just like all these little islands around this part of the Mediterranean. Oh, it's great. Yeah, That's really so awesome. I, I really enjoy that. And, you know, like the Mediterranean parts of France and m- maybe more in Italy, but they're just not the first parts I think of when I think of France and Italy, I guess. No, you know, like if no. I think of France, I think of Paris or the farms, right? If I think of Italy, I think of like Tuscany maybe or or like the tomato vines or the beautiful sun or like the, all the architecture there. But it's like just not the coastal parts. Which he seems but really so yeah. there. Well, yeah, Italy. It's like woo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I guess the other thing is that he seems to be able to do something that you see really rarely, and that's he's weaving multiple styles in to one tale, and he's weaving. We talk about how intricate the plan for revenge is. That's just a part of how intricate this story is. Oh God! And he must had so many notes to well, keep track of everything. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's obviously the work of a of a impressive mind. I think I enjoy his sense of joy. Like mm. he just he enjoys interesting things. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's this is more about uh, maybe the Three Musketeers, but mm. but the, it's it's so obviously the same author because mm. he he revels in his worlds that he's creating yeah. in a way he seems. Like he's enjoying telling the story almost as much as you are, or maybe <laughs> even reading. more than yeah. you're enjoying oh, reading it. That's for and, sure. And I don't know of many other authors that I can just say that's true for. Mm. Well, he's definitely a swashbuckler. Yeah, like that he, would be. He's he would an adventurer. Be a, like he would be a Jack London. Of, Jack London yeah. enjoys. Re- yeah, would be another example. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I it's a, it's a. I was very daunted. I mean, I always knew Canon Monte Cristo was a super long book. I very purposely skip over it every time I go to the bookstore. I'm like, oh, maybe it should. Oh, no, it's too big. No, it's too big. Uh, maybe. So I was I was a little bit, <laughs> I felt some trepidation going into, oh, my gosh. We just finished Atlas Shrugged. We're going to open up an almost 1,500-page novel. I honestly thought I flew through it. Yeah. It was it's such not an easy a hard read. read. No. Not a hard read. 
So very uh, enjoyable. We said kind of the opposite about Dickens, so I want that noted. <laughs> like we're not always saying that they're easy to read. <laughs> true. True. We, 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 I guess we did say Atlas Shrugged was really hard to read. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Oh, well, we already talked about that <laughs> yeah. book for four hours. I'm not going to say anything else about it. So before we kind of give our closing thoughts, we wanted we both actually also watched the movie. So we wanted to just give a couple little thoughts on in there. There are a, a lot of major differences. I mean, it's almost not. I mean, it's the same framework for the story, but it's yeah, and the same character names and. But the, but the I guess for the most part, and the plot sort of follows the same arc, but not really. Yeah, well, and the, the biggest thing is the that the prison scene is basically the same. All of the relationships are different. Yes. Yeah. Well, in the movie. Dantes and Fernand, who goes by Mondego, his last name a lot more, which is the Guy Pierce character, they are very close friends. Where in the book, they like barely know each other. They're like acquaintances. <laughs> in the movie, Danglar is an old man. Yeah. And, in the, and in the book, he's like young. He's like 26. And he's the mastermind of the entire plot. And in the movie, he's like the third wheel yeah, member. Like he barely the, shows up. In the book, Villefort's dad's name is Nortier. And he's in the book, like the whole book. He's a very major character. But in the movie, his name is Clarion. And he dies pretty early on. And he just gets killed. Yeah, he gets killed. I found, um, and maybe this is just because a visual medium can make these things way more visceral. In the movie, I found Dantes to be way more angsty and revengey, like right. like emotionally and visibly angsty and revengey than in the book, but still earnest and gullible. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't seem nearly as impressive in the movie. Did mm-hmm. you get that? Like in the book, I'm like, this is a powerful figure, and in the movie, I'm like, huh. Yeah, I mean, he had some moments of being impressive in the movie, but I I just was not nearly as... The thing is, okay, so I've seen the movie probably about four times, actually, because I watched it in theaters. I think it came out in, like, 2002. So I remember going to it in theaters. Did you enjoy it? it a couple times. Yeah, yeah, I did. I liked it a lot. I actually like it less now that I've read the book. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> because I think like, the book is a lot better. Almost always the case. Yeah, yeah, almost always. But not so much... Often that when I watch the movie again after I'm like noticeably disappointed, <laughs> right, right? But I was I felt noticeably disappointed in well I mean it's a movie so they have to do in two hours what this book does over fifteen hundred pages but I was like this is not nearly as intricate or interesting or multi dimensional all of the villains are just falling into his trap right away. And they're like colluding in a way that they just, their relationships are so different in the movie that they're all like still kind of working together to get more money. And in the movie, they're going to like actually steal from the Count to get what they want out of him, even though that's the Count's plan. So I was just like, this is way more predictable, I thought. So maybe I'm contradicting myself where I'm thinking maybe the Count's revenge should have just been more (laughs) to the point. Right. (laughs) The movie's a more to the point revenge story. And it's more predictable it's more predictable i mean the revenge is still sweet for him in the movie i I do get that cathartic right i've defeated my enemies moment but they're just the enemies aren't like both danglar and villefort are not nearly developed enough in the movie and guy pierce does an awesome job as mondego and he's like this skeezy womanizer i believed his betrayal even less (laughs) than the ones in the book i was like why would you do this to your like he's actually your friend well, and then the whole like Mercedes is really it's really Dante's child. All of, I don't know. Well, yeah, it was definitely ma- it, like all of it was just made more Hollywoody. 
Yeah. And had to be. And I, I think guess. once you've read a 1400 page book on something and then you watch a two hour movie, you're like, oh, this is hollow and empty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I still like, I still think it's a decent movie. Like, it's well made. The acting is really good. Yeah. But I just feel like that you're right. It's hollow. It's so hollow compared to the book. So yeah. if you've seen the movie and you liked it, read the book because I would bet you'll love the book. Yes. Agreed. So Jacopo in the movie plays the role of basically what Bussini and Wilmore do in the book, right? Like he's buying everything, setting up all the behind the scenes stuff is Jacopo. And I was like, I guess that makes sense. But I was like, yeah. <laughs> why? <laughs> he saved his life once. Don't need another relatively famous person, I guess, to be on screen enough. I guess so. But there were two parts of the movie that I really loved. And I don't think they were in the book. At least I don't remember the lines in the book. And there's one. The, the first one is Faria. And he says to Dantes, do not commit the crime for which you now serve the sentence. And I was like, what a great little conscience yeah. tidbit there, right? Don't let yourself become the monster Yeah, that they have painted you to be. I was like, man, this is coming from the character that has disciplined himself hard enough to like maintain like build everything that he has make candles make fire make books i just thought that was such a great piece of wisdom just in general if you are suffering injustice don't earn it (laughs) even after you are getting punished yeah yeah that was a good line it's like high level maturity and the other part of the movie that is very different from the book but i actually think this makes more sense actually and it made me like the character more the one character i like more in the movie than the book is mercedes yes i think she's way more interesting in the movie and in it a lot more and much more central but there's a great scene where she knows it's dantes and he knows that she knows but he's not admitting and she's like beseeching him and he's not giving in she says i want to be free of you the way you are free of me or the way you seem to be free of me. Yes, yes, yes. I want to be free of you the way you seem to be free of me. And I, I just was thinking like, now that is a haunting, you know, apparition in relationships and the end of relationships and what we might call closure, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, because mm-hmm. she clearly, in the movie, she clearly still loves him and he doesn't seem to love her. And it's and it's like that longing of like, well, why why have you been able to let me go and I can't let you go? Like, there's something so cosmically unfair about this. Please tell me your secrets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I've, I've had situations like that happen and it's just so hard, hey? It's just so oh. painful. Well, I mean, it's that whole, there's a line from, uh, I it's from Before Sunrise and, uh, mm. he, or yeah, Before Sunrise and, uh, Ethan Hawke says, uh, you know what the worst part about a breakup is? It's uh, it's knowing when you broke up with someone else, how little you think about them and knowing that that's what's happening right now. Oh, like, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Now, I mean, the irony in the, in the Count of Monte Cristo, that, that's a great line. But the irony in this story is that he actually still very much loves yeah, her. Yeah, exactly. But he doesn't in the book. No. Like, that's just not it's a thing done. in the book. That was the one part of the movie that made more sense to me. I was like, why would he not still love her? in the book why would he not at least be curious about what she was doing yeah yeah he just seems because they're very legitimately in love before he goes to the chateau deef yeah i I think uh i think back then it was a little bit more his reward seems to be that he finds you know love with someone else 
I don't know. I really don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, it didn't make the book any worse, for sure. I just was, I thought it was like a more, it made more intuitive sense to me that he would be still caring about Mercedes. and Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, especially, I guess, when he finds out that Albert is his son. Yes, who that is, would help. Actually, I, I mean, I never would have known this at the time. And it's kind of, you see it a little bit, but uh, the son in the movie is played by Henry Cavill, who is... Um, you know, Superman now oh, in, in the Justice true, League. True. And uh, he was the villain in the latest Mission Impossible movie, which is a great movie as well. So. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. So I guess that just brings us to final thoughts. I mean, we kind of have glossed out. We've mentioned a few times. The real, the biggest like suspension of disbelief for this story is, oh, by the way, you're filthy rich too. Yes. <laughs> like that. Yeah. That's a fun plot it's a contrivance. Fantasy, yes, right? it is a fantasy. But the rest of it, I think, is just, it's not implausible, you know? No. <laughs> if I mean, you're if committed you have 10 to years it. to <laughs> yeah. commit to that. I would just reiterate, I think, what I said earlier is that as a story on its own feet, this is great. So if this was a book review, I could like, I would give this book an A+. Plus, I think. Yes. Yeah. But as far as Dantes's spirit and mental state, I just don't think he would actually get the meaning out of this that he thinks he's going to get out of it. I think you're right. Right? And so that's what I would say. And then the rest of it is like, be wary of your vain aspirations because even if you ostensibly get what you want, like Villefort or Danglar or Fernando, you have these skeletons in your closet that just won't let you go. And if they come out, you're not going to have any allies. Yeah. And then you're destroyed socially and emotionally. It's like vanguarding your own conscience and mental well-being into the future by making more ethical decisions in your present, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is I not think. really the way we think about it. Like we think like, well, don't do bad things because you hurt other people. Right. But, but one of the great things of this book is don't do bad things because you're hurting your future self. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as well as other people. And, and don't commit injustice because, you know, it's going to come back and mm-hmm. haunt you. So, yeah. I, I love this book, but I think Dante's probably could have had a better way to do revenge but it is an incredible story yeah if you want a story that you can just kind of some of the best stories are the ones you can kind of just sink into and kind of soak in right almost like a a good bath right like yeah yeah yeah. where you just feel comfortable and i don't think at any point reading this even in the in the weird twists and turns that he takes was I bored no. or <laughs> no. or uninterested? I was curious about yeah. where this was possibly going, but but it was always well told and interesting, and I think it's just worth doing because not o- because he has a lot, and we didn't get to all of them at all, but a lot of those one-liner insights, and I think one of the ones that I like the most was actually from when he's looking for the treasure on the island. And it talks about how he was um, trying to limit his expectations and hope because, you know, hope is kind of the the thing that keeps people going, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, I mean, it was well-written, and I, I'm not going to be able to quote yeah. it right now. But that is all throughout this book. <laughs> like, yeah. great authors, and especially great classical authors, have these insights that mm-hmm. they just weave into these amazing plots and character developments it's just human nature Mm -hmm. this is what i noticed totally no i agree and it's just it's like weirdly gripping 
yeah. for such a sprawling overtime novel. There are some scenes that are just really tense when Max is out in the orchard in the kind of midnight listening to what's going on. I'm like, well, this is a, this is a, like a thriller. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's like multi genre in that way at different times. And so I know a lot of the big, like, you know, hilariously, a lot of the big books we read, we just say, Hey, don't read this. Yeah. <laughs> just listen yeah. to us. We'll <laughs> tell you, but I would recommend reading this book. It's like one of those ones that you will feel really you will enjoy it while it's happening and you'll be really glad you did it, you know, because it's one of those huge books that doesn't feel like a huge book. Yeah. Anyway, this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. And may the force be with you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.